Welcome back to the Peripheral Views Podcast, folks. Thank you for joining us on this uh, December 29th, 2023. I'm your host, Jake. My co-host, Errol, is with me. What's going on, Errol? Nothing. Nothing much. Just enjoying the the holiday season, bringing it into the New Year's. Been We're doing a lot it. of ref- doing a lot of reflecting. Um, mm-hmm. Any uh, any New Year's resolutions? Hmm. For myself, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I like to do it every year. I like. I'm a little bit uh, more like intense about them. They're not really specifically. Like I like to do like a very comprehensive like breakdown of like my be my behaviors. Like I've got like, I've got like a more of and less less of list, um, <clears throat> and I, I kind of break those two categories down. And then I've got like also on top of that, I do like a, I do like my annual goals, um, which is extremely lengthy this year. Um, this is like a big big twenty twenty four is a big year for the Perry household. I'll tell you that much. Um, so I've got like that. And then I've got like, uh, <clears throat> I've also got like a pretty comprehensive, like month to month. I like take the annual goals and then I like break them down month to month. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit more than a resolution. I, I think a lot of people are just like, yeah, I'd like to exercise a little more. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a psychopath about it. I think I'm just going to be way too intense and probably, uh, burn out. You know, that's how I go about it. Oh how yeah. Um, that's, that's a pretty good, uh, and I have a pretty good analogy almost exactly for that. Uh, so someone posted, they're like, man, last year was really like a roller coaster. I hope this year is more like a merry-go-round. And everyone's like, yep, like life has its ups and downs. And like, I was like, I'm pretty sure my next year is going to be like a slingshot where it's going to have so much like potential, like acceleration and, uh, you know, like just like gaining ground until I'm eventually dragged down by the tension and gravity of it all. And then flung into screaming back to earth. It's going to send me (laughs) right back down to earth, right where I belong. (laughs) So my inhibition or like my, everything I want to do is just going to shoot right through the roof. And then right when I get to that, just the tension of it all and all the, the gravity of the situation, it's going to bring my, Spirit right, right back down to <laughs> You've earth. Got, listen, that's the that's like the I didn't think that you were gonna be able to like intensify my my like um my perspectives on New Year's resolution, but I think you actually accomplished that. You uh, know, you know what I said too? I posted that and then I was like, I hope everyone's year is fair. And no one liked it. I like that. I actually do well, like, no, like that. Like that and like fair, like, because everyone's talking about like merry-go-rounds and like, Oh, I see. Like carnival. So I was, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I hope everything, everyone has, I was like, either way, I hope everyone's year is fair. Yeah. It's Ooh. fair-esque. Yeah. Flew right over everyone's right heads. Right over like, the top, like the slingshot. Like those little gondola rides at yeah. Disney World. Yeah, I, I, I see. I don't. Books. I don't like the car. The like carnival analogies for like life management. From my perspective, it's just like no one ever gets it just right. So just like doing, getting as close to a per. I've listen. People have been telling me. All the adults in my life were telling me when I was a kid that <clears throat> that life's all about balance, and I was just like, "Bitch, shut up! I can handle whatever I want." <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? Like, there's plenty of that. Like dialogue just floating around from all the like the wise the wise elders and from my perspective it's like actually the most like sage advice i've ever heard is like 
because that's what as I get older with like when all the responsibilities of, of being an adult kind of like pour into your life and they kind of build up. <clears throat> it's like true. That's like my that's actually kind of like the underpinning of, of or the undergirding of like my entire uh, year aspirations is get the balance as close to perfect as you possibly can, because that's like if you do that, you're not distracted. You know what I mean? Like, like if you have a, if you have like things like kind of like balanced out, okay, here are the, here are the 10 most important things that need to be done this year. Okay. I'm going to focus on those, make sure they encapsulate everything and then that, and try to balance them out. Like if there's 10 of them, 10% to each and try to get the a good, even balance across the board. And like, boy, that, I mean, as challenging as that is, it's actually kind of nice to have like that aspiration kind of like kind of buttoned up a bit, but Good luck. It's really, it's really funny because I'm like the exact opposite. I'm just like, I'm just going to work out a little bit more. Yeah. I'm like, I'm what you call like over overtly ambitious at this stage in life. And it's actually like a curse. Midlife curse. Yeah. Well, listen, it's like, I think it's a good thing, but it's also like, it can be a curse because it can be very stressful to take on too much. But uh, the, the one thing I did do though, is I, um, uh, I did start like a week before the new year so I can look down on it. Smart comes in. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. Guys, you got to have that. Listen, you gotta start building that damn ego up as early as possible. I already have a locker. The locker's already taken. You, you got to be here. Grand opening. Yeah. You're going to see some newbie walking in there and you're going to be standing there next to your week old locker and you're going to be like, man, just shake your head. Just drop your head down. Shake it. Mm. Yeah. You're a newbie. Um, no less, we've got a big podcast tonight. Um, aside from the New Year's, Happy New Year's to uh, all our listeners. Happy uh, Merry Christmas. Um, I Merry think we should Christmas. probably off the top address. Yeah, I know Merry <laughs> Merry Christmas very saltfully. Um, we should probably address the big uh, elephant in the room. We had a beautifully composed ranking show for uh, a Christmas episode, a very holiday festive episode in the works we had it developed we had it written we had it, it was in person we had it in, we we got so far as to have it actually recorded um unfortunately we had technical difficulties in person about two weeks ago uh it's about yeah it's about two weeks ago at this point yeah but that wasn't gonna stop us nope so we said you know what no problem uh we're gonna scrap the recording and we just kind of enjoyed the uh in-person company me and errol just hanging out watching fights and uh, then we moved on, and we decided a week later we would we would reattempt. Um, that reattempt was successful all the way up until the recording aspect of the actual podcast, which turns out is essential to uh, you know releasing MP3 files to the world. So um, I ran out of storage, uh, and we had about an hour and forty five minutes recorded of that podcast, ranking our top five. Uh, Christmas songs and our top five Christmas movies talked about the spirit of Christmas talked about all these things. So what we decided because that file actually on my behalf became corrupt um, and unfortunately was unable to be uh, secured or stored. Um, we're going to move on from that episode very sadly. Um, but I think what, what, what did we decide, Errol? I think we're going to circle back to a Christmas ranking show next, um, next year. And then we're going to expand it. Right to make yeah, up for we'll the go, lost. We'll go top 10. Yeah. Expand it five by five. We'll, we'll do a super comprehensive, maybe even split it up into two different episodes and really take our time with it. Cause I think at this point we've kind of recorded um, about two and a half hours in total of like content related to 
our top five Christmas uh, songs and films. So uh, we'll extend it to top five next Christmas holiday season. Um, at a certain point, you gotta you gotta cut your losses and move right ahead, um, which we're gonna do tonight. Um, we're gonna close out the year on a bang. We're gonna close out the year tonight with our what is this our sixth, I believe, installment, or maybe no, I'm sorry this this might be our seventh installment of the uh, of the film series. We are talking. We're going back to Martin Scorsese too. I forgot, you know, I forget that we've actually already discussed a Martin Scorsese film, but we're going to talk another Martin Scorsese film tonight. We're talking Wolf of Wall Street. Um, it is the 10 year anniversary of Wolf of Wall Street. It came out uh, Christmas Day 10 years ago. Um, so just a couple of days past the 10 year anniversary, we're going to talk that film um, up and down and in and out as best we can. But before we get rolling on that, let's do a little bit of housekeeping, shall we? We've got uh, peripheralviewspodcast.com. That's the webpage. And all of our content is up there. If you would like to be a subscriber to our mailing list, um, that'll be kind of starting a new development, um, hopefully in the new year. So uh, feel free to subscribe there to our, our newsletter. Um, hopefully we get that off the ground in the next few months. Uh, sometime in 2024, we hope to, to kind of start providing updates via email on that, on that newsletter um, source. Also, we're on YouTube, on Apple, and Spotify. All those streaming platforms support the Peripheral Views podcast. And if you do happen to listen to us on those streaming platforms, please subscribe, rate, and review to assist with any of our analytic development. Um, helps the podcast out, keeps us on the on the path, and keeps us. It's good feedback. Good feedback, so we know what we're uh, where our strengths are. Uh, we're on X or Twitter slash Twitter Peripheral V at Peripheral V one two three on soundcloud.com forward slash peripheral views one two three and if you'd like to reach us more directly peripheral views podcast at gmail.com is the direct email to the podcast errol um should we dive into it should we is there anything we need to touch upon i know that the last time we spoke um well we aside from the debauch the the, the you know the debacle of the christmas episode that is evidently clear evidently cursed the last time we spoke was uh, UFC 296 preview show. Uh, that pay per view went, came and went, and we watched it together in person. Uh, any any thoughts that you'd like to share on on that pay per view before we move into today's episode? Man, it's just uh, um, as other than that knockout, it's kind of uh, the main card was almost exactly what I expected, but I was really sad to see it. Yeah, like, it was a little like, bit of a dud. I was like, this is actually pathetic. Like I was yeah. like, you know, and I'm like, oh, this guy really can't compete with him. There's nothing he can do. And then you just see a guy out there not not doing anything. Yeah, yeah. That was at the end of the day, like Colby Covington versus Leon Edwards uh was the main event of that of that pod of that uh pay-per-view. Uh Pantoja and Roy Val was a good fight, but it wasn't a great fight, in all honesty. Shavkat Rachmanov finished off Stephen Wonderboy Thompson's pretty quick in the second round and really was not a first round was a little bit lackluster, but Shavkat went out there and just polished him off in the second round. Uh Patty Pimblett did 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 the damn thing to Tony Ferguson, which people kind of expected. It was a somewhat entertaining fight, but it was really, it was really a, a really good buildup. I enjoyed the buildup to it. Yeah, there the, were there were moments in that card for sure, but I thought the card sucked. Oh, I, mean, no, I, I just, thought like know, the Patty Pimblet fight in general. Yeah, with no, the right. Ferguson. Like, yeah, it was the, a good build. They they did a good job building that fight and gaining interest, but I I did think that the the fight did not. Might be a swan song. Yeah, I think Tony's Tony's just done, and I don't think the problem is is that 
it went to a decision, which in my opinion is like the worst case scenario for a guy like Patty, because I think there were some questions about his skill set and his skill level going into the fight and not being able to finish a guy like Tony Ferguson, who is very clearly competitive in all of his fights to some degree, but has been finished in the last three fights uh, from Michael Chandler, Nate Diaz, and then Bobby Green. Um, I think, I think Patty fought a smart fight. Yeah, he took, he took, he took a safe route. I think um, I would really, I mean, he's, I, I think at this point he's now five and zero in the UFC or four and oh. So they really, I think it's time. Time to like the Tony Ferguson win is a that's a big name. I'd like to see I'd like to see them push him into like a new territory in terms of competitiveness. So hopefully they do that. Um, but I don't want to belabor too much on on UFC talk because uh, I think in January we have a UFC um, breakdown. We're gonna actually uh, hopefully we can kind of break that. We got a ranking show coming in January that will kind of dive us into the year that was twenty twenty three for the UFC talk. So, um, but I do want to focus on the content of the day, which is Wolf of Wall Street from 2013, Martin Scorsese's black comedy. Um, there's a lot to discuss on that. So let's get rolling on it. Um, but first and foremost, uh, let's do what we customarily will do in, uh, in a film episode within that film series. Let's talk about film in 2013. Errol, why don't you tell me what stood out to you from the list of films that came out in 2013? Um, we won't sit on it too long, but I do want to talk about kind of where we're at in the world of cinema in 2013. It's so that year seemed so big, like as it was happening, like with all this, like the Hobbit and there's like so much hype with like uh, Iron Man three and like Thor and like Marvel is like starting to like roll. But there's not a lot of movies that like really stick out here for me. See, I'm the opposite. I actually thought there was, I thought this was a, like a, a sneaky, like great year. Gravity's gravity's like probably that's a big one. Yeah. That's um, probably one of the better ones there, but I didn't, I didn't see a uh, 12 years. Asleep. Can I admit, can I admit something now on the podcast? This is going to be, this is going to disappoint some folks. I have never seen gravity. I've never seen 12 years of sleep. Oh boy. Oh, we're one for one. Yeah, dude. Uh, we, we owe each other those films. I think it's time. I think it's time. Um, cause I was actually going to say if we ever did like a, uh, I know that like people have a lot of problems with 12 years of slave for me. That is like in my, that is probably in my top three, um, films, 12 years of slave. I, I'm I'm talking about probably my top three films of the century so far. Damn. Um, it's, very brutal it's very it's uh, i don't i don't know that there's adjectives to describe how very difficult the film is to watch it's very very hard to watch um but i think it's like deeply important i know that people had problems with it because steve mcqueen is not a an african-american he's an Af he's a, an african englishman um so people had a little a couple of issues with that on a, it's called a acting well he's a director he's a director um <clears throat> but yes, actually, it, no. But your your actual your comment does still apply because the uh, lead actor, um, who's jeez, uh, I his name is uh, difficult to pronounce. Um, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, I believe is how it's. I, I, I'm sure there's a much better and smoother pronunciation of his name. But he is also an English actor, the man who played Solomon Northrop. Um, he is also a British actor playing an African-American slave as of Solomon Northrop. Um, but I mean, we should just dive right into it. I actually think this is 
this was the best film of that year, without question, even ahead of Wolf of Wall Street, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I would even better that. than Fast and Furious Six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't hold a candle. You got the diesel, anything that the diesel's in. I mean, it's just taking the cake. That's best picture. Yeah, I told you the one time you laughed at me, I stopped after Tokyo Drift. <laughs> I, listen, I wasn't trying to shame the drift, man. But yeah, like, you were. <laughs> I wasn't trying to. I just was. <laughs> yeah. I'm to be fair, but I actually, I, think, I think this I was sure. a good year. Like, um, hold on, I want, I want to kind of run down the list really quick, but and then we can kind of pick out which ones stood out to us before we move into the film. Twelve Years of Slave, obviously, and you mentioned Gravity; those are two big ones. Iron Man three was the on a critical level. Right now, my daughter's super into Frozen, so we're, that's that's been floating around. That's a monster. That's a beast. That's like the number one film of the year in terms of like box yeah. office. That's a that's a beast right there. Just like, and like it's got legs too. Oh hell yeah! It's not going anywhere. It's still as popular as it's ever been. Ten years later, it's a it's a monster. Um, the Hobbit was big. I thought The Hobbit sucked personally. <laughs> I, I didn't, dude. I the reason I loved The Lord of the Rings is because it wasn't CGI. I love The Lord of the Rings uh, like lore and universe, but like oh, me too, me too. I was no. like. Man. Well, yeah, those first three, the first three Lord of the Rings, Fellowship, Twin Towers, and um, uh, or Two Towers, not Twin Towers, geez, uh, <laughs> very different film. Uh, and then Return of the King, those that trilogy is second to none. I mean, they and you know but, what? It's it might be because we're holding a candle to it. So it's just no, like the Hobbit can... is. I've re I revisited the Hobbit in the last like few years. Like, no, it's a it's a big fat no. It, it's it's. It's trying to do too much. Like it's just trying to. It's trying to. It's kind of like reimagining. It's trying to reignite the magic that was Lord of the Rings, and I, I just don't think it works. It just doesn't work as a film for me. I thought it was, and I haven't seen the the follow ups. Maybe they're better. I don't know. But that first film was just. It's just kind of hitting the same notes, but it feels very leftovery. If I can, mm-hmm. if I can make up a word for it. Um, Smog was cool. Smaug. Yeah, they're, they're, listen, there's some like it's very impressive. It's beautifully shot and visually stunning, but it's it's I just don't think it works. I'd rather just watch the original trilogy just because I think there's so much more originality. And um, the original one is just not trying to do it's not trying to pull the same tricks from a previous set of films. It's very original. The original the originality aspect of it really kind of pushes it into its own category almost. Um her came out that year. That was a huge hit. Did you see her by chance? Arrow? No, I wasn't. I don't know what I was doing this year. No, I missed that one too. That one has not hit my radar. But the films that I had that I did see that I thought were worth mentioning. Uh, first of all, Dallas Buyers Club was this year with Matthew McConaughey. Um, Matthew McConaughey making an incredible cameo in this in Wolf of Wall Street, which we will discuss. But um, as you can see in Wolf of Wall Street, in his cameo, he was uh, in preparation or either post-production or pre-production for Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club is a genuine, it's a sneaky masterpiece. It's an amazing film, amazing film. And it's all centered around a McConaughey performance that is second to none. It's the best he's ever been and won him an Oscar. So um, that's a great film. Inside uh, Lewin Davis was a Coen Brothers movie kind of centered around Dave Van Rink. Um, a folk singer from the sixties Greenwich village stuff. Um, I didn't like it. I know a lot of people like it. I'm not a huge fan of inside Lewin Davis. It's not my favorite Coen brothers film, even remotely. 
Um, for me, at least, I, I know that a lot of people really, really, really like that film. I, I'm not a huge fan. It's very bleak. Um, Nebraska, Alexander Payne's uh, black and white film with Bruce Dern, who is a, you know, a, a Hollywood legend, really, um, and got his got his lead role and got I believe he was out nominated for an Oscar. That's a great film. Nebraska is a great film. It's very like charming and and it's a really nice film. It's a short little black and white film from Alexander Payne who made the holdovers. It, it, it's a great film. Um. The Purge. You saw The Purge, right, Errol? No. Mm, you didn't see The Purge. Purge is good, man. That's good. That's like a very innovative. I didn't like the, I didn't like the premise. I'm like, this is like. I did. I thought the premise was actually pretty original, kind of smart, uh, like interesting idea, especially for like a horror movie or a thriller movie. Like, it, it... I was really I was really jaded in 2013. No, do you know how like when you hear about a horror movie and then you kind of hear about the premise before the film? And it can kind of turn you off to it. You're just like, eh. And then, so I didn't watch it. And then there's such like a hype behind it too that I was just being like a contrarian. Oh and I'm like, yeah, this is just exactly. stupid. That's and what by I'm the time at. like the third one came out, came out, I was like, yo, yeah. this is dumb. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Almost, it's like it's like the purge came out and it had a bunch of hype, and it was like kind of the premise was actually kind of like not unoriginal, but like very straightforward and you kind of get the gist of the film just by reading about it, but it actually does some pretty cool cinematic tricks that you, I think you'd enjoy. Like it's, it is a, it's a good ride. It's pretty fun. Yeah. I got to start just enjoying stuff more. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to kind of just like, you know what? I'm, this has got some hype maybe for a reason and just kind of believe in the people a little bit. You know what I mean? I don't trust no one. <laughs> That's a I'll trust, I'll trust anyone's <laughs> opinions. Not even my own. Don't listen um, to me. Well, I'll, I'll name uh, three more of of my. Um, no, I'll name four more. Four. I've got four other films that truly are at the top of my heap here. Um, this is the end. Was fucking amazing. Uh, did you see that one or no? That one didn't. No. That one's great. That's the that's Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg going right back at that movie. Is, you know what this seem- comedy amazing. You know what it stuff. seems like they were like almost trying to do and like you may have uh, uh, just barely failed at which is what it like swinging the box office just with the names and like the absurd like yeah it was it was pretty like, you know bold, what I mean? they're just like they're like it's really just it's just us and mm-hmm. we're at a party and then the it's the uh, apocalypse or something like a, a yeah. quote-unquote biblical apocalypse for lack of yeah hope. i'm it's just you know what it is though the the film is like it's very meta like it's very like real but not real um right it's very like um kind of like entourage where like everybody's kind of playing they're all playing themselves and it, it's fun it's fun as shit and it's re- it has dude danny mcbride is in that film is just throwing heat my friend i mean he is just like he just comes in and just i I, one of the better comedic performances of this whole of that whole decade. I mean, he was just killing that film. It's a great film. It is, and it really is worth. I think it's pretty short, and it's very absurdist, and it's great. Um, but the other the other three I wanted to mention were The Conjuring. Did you see The Conjuring? Yeah, I saw that in theaters. Now that was sick. That was actually pretty like, holy shit! They still horror still got it right. Like that kind of reinvigorated the whole genre of, uh, and it kind of kickstarted like a whole new universe of, of horror film, right? Like there's like the nun movies and 
Uh, I think they made like four or five of the Conjuring films, and it, it really turned into a, a whole franchise. But the first one is very effective. Did you like the first one, or did it kind of like, eh, kind of went? Yeah, I saw it with my mom, and like, she like really liked it. But I was like, this isn't. This is just a retelling of uh, what's Amityville? the Amityville horror. Yeah, there's like Amityville and Poltergeist. Like, if they had bit. like like a baby in the future. But it's kind of effective though. Like I saw, I thought it was pretty spooky. Like you remember, the, I, you remember the scene with like the clap game, where like hmm. she's downstairs and she she thinks she's playing with her child, and she's like she claps and then she hears a clap and she tries to get closer to it with the blindfold on, and then she goes upstairs and she's playing clap clap and there's no child and then it's like, hmm. who the fuck is clapping? <laughs> that scene is pretty like hair raising. It's, it's she, very scary. Maybe it's just like, I don't know. It's hard for me to suspend. Uh, you don't like horror, do you? It, well, it's just if I see something like supernatural, like that I have not seen before, I'd be like, I'm leaving this place because a there's probably a gas leak and I'm hallucinating, or b <laughs> there's something going on here. I'm not gonna be like, well, it was a great deal, honey. I'd be like, no, I'd be like, I'm not. Nope. Every time, oh, now the kid's possessed. I'd be like, drop him off at a. See that I don't know. Maybe it's just like the second I try to get <laughs> the second a spirit would try to spite me, like I would just I go to church all the time. I'd be like, that means like this whole thing's real with like purgatory and stuff. Drop my kid off at an institution, being like, oh, I just lot think they're to, like a lot to be concerned with for sure. I think they're I think they're crazy or something like that. You should look, and then they have to deal with the <laughs> speaking in Latin backwards, the fucking like, tongues. Yeah, no. No, thank you. That's oh, that's our baby. Not anymore. You didn't just see what that. Ha- you didn't just yeah. see him. You're, you're a pull the plug guy. You're one of those dude. Hundred like, percent. We lost. I'm not beating Satan. I didn't even believe he existed <laughs> two seconds before the kid floated <laughs> off the ground. I'm not gonna. Not, com- not well. Dip a compete. holy water and shotgun and just like you know. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, so that's when I see that kind of stuff. And also like people who are like superstitious, like, oh, you're not scared. I'm like, until I see like knives floating up in the kitchen and like pointed towards me. I'm like, at oh. you. Yeah, but okay, that's this is spooky. Like something rattles or something. Like okay, cool, dude. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's I, I think it's great. It's it's for me. I love those horror movies because I have a pretty easy time suspending like disbelief and like really kind of just like letting myself disappear into the film. But like that's an acquired thing. You gotta. Think- my my family was like dangerously superstitious growing Ooh, up. Oh yeah, that can get you. So I always just had. I'd be like, because you're a damn haunted. contrarian. You really are. Well, that too, but they'd be like, "This house is haunted." I'd be like, "No, it's not." I mean, it's See, I don't even, I don't even, but I don't even buy into that stuff. Like, I've never been one to like, like I've had, I've had things, inexplicable things happen. I guess, sort of, but like, I always just chalk them up to like, I don't know, reason. I guess circumstance. I, I always think it's a yeah, nice coincidence, but I still can, I can still watch a film and be like, "Yeah," like I, I get me excited. It doesn't really scare me. It's more just like, "Yeah." That's titillating. Like I get that. Like okay. that's cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like it kind of like it's like a rush. It's like a rush, but not necessarily in the sense that like, oh wow, I'm gonna have a hard time sleeping tonight because you can ask my wife. We watch a horror movie that's like genuinely scary. I'm as soon as we go to bed, I'm asleep in 45 seconds. Flat, <laughs> no problem. Like, but she'll be just like, ah, ah, <laughs> like every little noise. But it just doesn't affect me that way because I'm just. I, I think I can just like appreciate the effectiveness of like a horror film and what it's going what it's like 
aiming to achieve in right let it settle right it it works for me um moving away from horror though i did want to hit i want to hit these last two before we we get rolling on the on the film of, of the day uh the world's end which is the that is the third in the Cornetto trilogy, right? That's did you see you yeah. saw World's End, right? Yeah, th- this is the one that I do. I'm actually sad that I didn't see yet. Because oh man, I, it's probably going to be your favorite, um, believe it or not, because I actually feel like it speaks to you most. Because it's like, so like you've got like the red is the Shaun of the Dead, blue is Hot Fuzz for like police, and then green the, that's the mint of the Cornetto, like the 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 Cornetto uh, trilogy cone is the, is the third one, which is aliens and the world's end dude. I rewatched this recently. I was so, I was like very pleasantly surprised because I saw it in theater and I was just like, eh, definitely my third favorite. Doesn't really, not really hitting home. I watched it. It's like, it's like very good. It is really aged well. And 10 years later, like I can't believe it's been 10 years since it came out. It is very good. Very, very good. I was like, deeply surprised in the fact well, that no, I, that's the thing simon Pegg, like i feel he throws like everything at like this stuff he really at does. least with that like it's so incredible. i i really love uh i really love uh sean of the dead but me too i like um uh sorry uh hot fuzz is like airplane level jokes where it's oh everything God, they yeah. say like at least there, it probably isn't. It is a little bit in Shaun of the Dead too. But like Hot Fuzz is there's like I feel like there's no no dialogue wasted. No, I would like to make a quick shout out by the way to the uh, All the Right Movies podcast. They are uh, if for folks listening, if you're interested in a podcast that's going to cover the film Hot Fuzz, starring it's directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, starring Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, just like our guys. These are like. I mean, three of my favorite films ever. Two of them definitely Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, like two of the best comedies ever written. Um, All the Right Movies podcast. Those guys are going to be releasing a a podcast on Hot Fuzz here in the next, uh, I believe it comes out in two weeks or so, two or three weeks. So just keep your eyes peeled for that. Anybody who's interested in listening to a podcast, like a very comprehensive, well-made podcast, the All the Right Movies guys, they do a great job with that kind of stuff. And they're going to be covering Hot Fuzz in a couple of weeks. Um, Definitely something I'd like to cover too on the podcast too. I'm I'm sure we could maybe contribute to the dialogue around that film because that film is like packed, as you're saying, like packed full of jokes, just nonstop. See, so I'm like, it's bringing me back to the Lupe Fiasco episode. I don't know. It's like four it's a parts. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's so much. There's so much there, and there's so much like, um, there's just so much. There's so much influence in like like direction style and editing style that's like very much um, a product of like whatever Edgar Wright was super interested in and like he just made a fucking action movie he just made like a cool ass action movie that had like with like a Wicker Man plot <laughs> it's like it was just deeply funny it was like yeah, funny was gonna, and angry. Heck. I, I was gonna say uh, uh Simon Pegg ran so. Keanu Reeves could run and John Wick. <laughs> yeah. This is well, but, but here's the, here, here's the difference though. Simon Pegg ran. Simon Pegg, Pegg walked. No, no, no. Keanu Reeves walked so Simon Pegg could jog. Keanu Reeves walked in point break so Simon Pegg <laughs> could jog in hot fuzz so Keanu Reeves could pick it back up, run again in John Wick. <laughs> That's, I think, what you're going for. Yeah, Keanu so, Reeves, yeah. 
because Point Break is like one of the biggest influences of Hot Fuzz, and that was Keanu Reeves like early in his career. Um, but like, yeah, there's like a string of like total fucking influence. Not to not to uh, take anything away from Keanu Reeves, he's sprinting his ass off in the Matrix too. So straight like, up, yeah, he I mean, was just right. He didn't need nobody. He's jumping. Bro, the Matrix. Yeah, shit it's another one. It's like, good bullshit. lord, the influence that that movie had. I mean, incredible. Um, Heard it's a trans allegory. All right. Well. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not surprised to hear that, but we can we can unpack that on a Matrix podcast down the road because we got to get rolling. What? I got one. I got one more. I want to hit one more before we roll oh. into the film. Prisoners. Did you see Prisoners? Yes, I saw. You did it. see Prisoners? Okay. Yeah. Prisoners is tough. Prisoners is a tough, tough watch. I actually do think it's a modern masterpiece. Um by uh villeneuve the guy the guy who's responsible for dune and he's responsible for blade runner uh the new blade runner film you got robert roger deakins on cinematography it is a very very dark film i mean a very dark one of the darkest films i've ever seen one of the most like absolutely um gut-wrenching very sad films um the music in the film is is horrifying is like horrifyingly melancholic and even sadder to say um, the the uh, composer of the music of the film, the score producer, uh, Johan Johansson, um, who is a beautiful orchestrator of cinematography and music, um, unfortunately overdosed and passed away at age 48 shortly after the film was made a few years later in February 2018. But uh, I encourage anyone to go back and listen to his music and the compositions he's produced for film and otherwise, because he is a he's worked with um, Villeneuve on three films. He did uh, Prisoner, Sicario and Arrival. Um, And the music on all of those is just absolutely gorgeous. But it kind of it kind of works perfectly with the film because it makes it so melancholic and it is such a dark subject matter. I mean, um, not a fun, not a fun watch. We'll say that. I mean, abduction films are just no good. Um, Errol, you got anything else you want to add to our year of 2013 in film before we roll into The Wolf of Wall Street? No, not really. Everything is uh, just kind of a... Uh, it is just kind of a spinoff. So, I mean, I guess uh, Captain Phillips, I didn't watch it, but uh, there's I've seen enough of the meme with the... Look at me. Yeah. I'm the captain now. Dude, I heard that that guy was actually a piece of shit, Captain Phillips. They're like, yo, don't go, like, go, take a wide berth around the <laughs> Horn of Africa because there's pirates there. And he's like, nah, we'll get there in no time. Yeah, and he's asking like, for it. Yeah, like, they caught him. Yeah. And he's like, well, well, fucking, I know it's all my fault, but I'm the hero now. And like, yeah, I people never... who actually know about it, they're like, dude. I didn't see that one because it kind of felt like uh, Tom Hanks was just like, yeah, I'm doing, like, modern biopics because i'm also doing sully i'm gonna be sullenberg and i'm gonna be captain phillips because these were news stories and i was just like i i don't know this doesn't i'm not saying they're bad films they might be great films but uh i i kind of got a sense he that, needs like, to Tom do Hanks, one more where it's one? like land-based because he has the air and now he has the, he's got sea. the sea now he's got to go to the land who's, gotta, who's like a like modern a- hero uh, or a supposed hero of like the land he's gonna play benjamin Netanyahu. he's gonna play dale earnhardt <laughs> jr or sorry, Dale Earnhardt. No, he 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 <laughs> he did not make it. <laughs> no, you got to pick like a. It's got to be political because I think Tom Hanks is really going for political films at this point. Yeah, Dale Earnhardt. It's just political. <laughs> He's never going to play a, a a a 
red-blooded conservative NASCAR racer. He would never. If you do don't that. think Dale Earnhardt's political, you've never been to my family's Thanksgiving. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying he's on one side of the political spectrum that Tom Hanks is not. <laughs> um, and it'd be unlikely that a film would ever be made about him, unfortunately. Um, I will say this. American Hustle was a huge hit this year. That movie sucked. Big fat ones. Big old balls. <laughs> Hated that movie. Hate. Hate it. I'd, so I watched that with my wife, and I was like, I cannot fucking believe that anybody bought into this film. Uh, I think we've actually talked about it on the podcast before. That movie That movie blew chunks. Um, I saw that there's a couple of moments in it that are somewhat redeeming, but like when you got Bradley Cooper, <clears throat> Amy Adams and Christian Bale in a film and David O. Russell at the helm, like that is not what you expect. Where like expecting more like they really tried to make like a Steven Sod- Soderbergh film. And it was just like, this is like third rate Ocean's Eleven garbage. And it was uh, very incoherent and just just. Just not a good film. And and I actually felt like it could have been, it had like all the recipe, all of the components of a recipe that to make a great film. And it just, it just simply wasn't. So uh, um, I had to shit on that film before we move. Not that I want to end on it though, but I feel like it'd be disingenuous not to say uh, Henry Cavill did a really good job in Man of Steel portraying Superman. Yeah, no, 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 no. This is true. This is actually an important point because we got a new Superman in this year and, and he's, he's a good Superman. Uh, I did Austin. see Man of Steel. I saw it once. Uh, I didn't see anything else that he played Superman in. Um, Batman versus Superman, I did not unfortunately see, but uh, Man of Steel was good. That was very good. Uh, I haven't seen it since the first time I saw it, probably in 2013, but he is a good Superman. He he, he checks all the boxes. He's a good Superman. Yeah. Is he, is he not anymore? Is there I a new one? I believe so. I think there was a uh, recasting. Uh, yeah, we're falling out. Like he is, yeah, I don't think he'd like the direction or something. I don't know. He, Henry, I, whatever I trust Henry Cavill, whatever he does, he's doing a um a Warhammer thing, Warhammer 40k universe should be lit. Warhammer. Well, um, that's enough. I think we've probably covered enough on 2013 in film. We, there's a lot of good film. World War Z. What about that one? Did you? Well, we can end on that one. Did you see World War Z? Yeah, I, I like the idea of it and stuff, but um, I didn't see it. I didn't catch it. I don't. I don't like the. Uh, so I I feel like everyone was just kind of like zombie fever, like in the yep. like early two thousands. Agreed. And still totally kind of agree. like no. Yeah, um, totally agree. Granted, this was based off of like a book. Um, I I feel like some like the 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 thing of the zombies like the idea like definitely lost its meaning like over time where it it was like a um just a. It, it started off like as a like a social commentary and now it's just like dead yeah. things like sprint fast yeah romero so, was trying to make it like a romero made like uh dawn of the dead in seven in the 70s based on like he was trying to make a film about like anti-consumerism and mark and anti-marketalism and like trying to basically indicate to the American public stop being sheep and just like buying and, and, and becoming like zombified by uh, marketing schemes. And and then they zombified zombies. It, exactly. They totally like it became a mercantile like industry, a cottage industry of like um, just, just further consumerism. I mean, that's all it is. Look at the walking dead. The walking dead is like this monster universe. It might as well be its own Marvel universe. And, mm-hmm. That's exactly the opposite of what George, George, I think that's actually a very compelling point you just made. And 
I'd love to unpack that a little bit further because I do think Jordi Romero is probably rolling in his grave thinking that. No, he's not, dude. He's a he's fucking undead, like beaten at the call. He's a zombie. He should. Dude. They should like include him in every zombie film. Like he is the fucking master. They should like basically just re- reanimate him for every <laughs> for every zombie movie that comes out forth uh, forthright. So he's not yeah. rolling. He's Clawing at the dirt. Clawing his way out the freaking out of six feet of dirt. Um, that being said, I think that's enough for 2013. Um, I think it's time. Let's uh, it's getting late and we're gonna keep rolling. We gotta dive into this. Next up, we're gonna take a short break. When we come back, we are diving in to the 2013 black comedy absolute manic insanity that is the Martin Scorsese masterpiece, The Wolf of Wall Street. After this break, we'll be right back. Okay, 2013's Wolf of Wall Street by Martin Scorsese. Uh, what a film. What a what a wild ride of a film. Uh, let's do the quick rundown of what's going on with this film. Who are the players? Who uh, Who is it based on? All the details. Let's run through it. Uh, 2013 Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, an epic, epic film all the way through. No doubt about it. Uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Um his fifth crap, I believe his fifth collaboration with Leonardo DiCaprio. It is a uh, screenplay written by Terrence Winter. Terry Winter is also responsible for a bunch of the um, Sopranos. He's a Sopranos writer, mostly, I think, is probably his most, um, probably his most well known, uh, I would say, credited writing. A bunch of Emmy nominations. I mean, The Sopranos obviously is a very iconic piece of, of, of media in the world. Um, but the film was also produced by Martin Scorsese, and it was also financed and produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, another figure that it was produced and financed somewhat by is Riza Aziz. Um, we're going to talk about him a little bit later down the road in the film because he has an 
interesting backstory in terms of his relationship to the financing of the film um, that I actually think you'll, you'll find somewhat interesting Errol, if you didn't read about it um, on your own, but we will talk about that a little bit on the back end of the episode. Um, diving further, let's talk about the cast a little bit. Leonardo DiCaprio starring as Jordan Belfort um, based on the Jordan Belfort uh, 2007 memoir, um, which is of the same name, Wolf of Wall Street. Um, an interesting story about a, a fraudulent and corrupt stockbroker on Wall Street. Um, Jordan Belfort, a big player. I think he had a net worth north of, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars at one point or another. Um, but unfortunately, uh, came about his wealth in a very, very um, almost not illegal, but certainly an unethical and prosecutable, as we found out later in the film, manner um, through his uh, through his kind of fraudulent financial very, institution, Stratton Oakmont. Very seedy. Yeah. I mean, kind of, uh, as you kind of learn in the film a little bit and you kind of learn reading about his story, it's not exactly a, um, a clear and cut case of illegalities, definitely prosecutable though, somehow, which is the, that's the, that's kind of the interesting role that the well, SEC plays in, 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 situations like this is that you don't actually have to be um, you don't actually have to conduct yourself in an illegal way to be prosecuted by or to be barred from trading on the stock market or be barred from wall street just in general, or even be, you can even be prosecuted and sentenced to prison um, uh, without actually breaking true legal laws. But the sec as a, as a federal institution can, Trump up charges against you if you're acting against fiduciary duties and uh, violating FINRA regulations, which is a major, that's a major part of the story of Jordan Belfort, right? Well, so yeah, and this is definitely going to be like hammed up a little bit too. Like, um, cause I mean, truly it's uh, if we're going to just boil it down to like a tragedy, it's just a story of Icarus. Like right. flew close, if- to, too close to the sun. Yeah, if this is um, if the movie's like exactly what happened, he had an out and he could have just left, but then he let his hubris take over, and and like, and they all it. can. That's that's the crazy part is that like all of these cats can do this. They can make their wealth because, um, as is mentioned in the film, like, and we'll get into a little bit of the details, but McConaughey coming in and just like his his speech, um, to Belfort when Belfort's kind of like first joining wall street, I think it's his first day on wall street. He has a, he um, McConaughey playing Mark Hanna in the film actually sits him down and straight up tells him, yeah, like this, you, you can cash out at any time, but like as soon as your investors cash out, it becomes real and you don't want it to become real. So like these guys have opportunities to, to make their commission because at the end of the day, that's what's happening is, is, Belfort was making millions and millions on uh, on fraudulent investments or or artificially inflated priced uh, investments for his investors, getting them to continuously um, invest and then taking his commission money in in liquid form. Like he had liquidized cash upon every transaction in the form of tens of millions of dollars, which is, by the way, once it becomes cash, it's yours. He could walk away at any point. But. But he chose not oh, yeah, to. He, he kept rolling, just like he they had all cold do. hard, 
cold hard commission but it's kind of like um the uh, the pump and dumps that you see now or seen a little bit uh, not so much anymore with uh, um the game stock well not not so much like stock that wasn't really uh, a pump and dump though yeah but... no but the uh, um all that uh I, I can't even think of the thing now crypto so like a uh, crypto but the uh the pictures oh right the um jeez see uh, I know that's how that's how out of the point it, it was. A that's big how point. bad of an idea that that was. I should. What is it? It's the little um, monkey emoji things. Oh god, it's um. Fucking <laughs> dude, Jesus maybe we're Christ. just old. I I, well, no, maybe we are getting old, or it, it's not even so much that it's old. It's um. This wasn't a good idea. Uh, I don't even know how to Google it. I'd like to know. I'd like to, re, 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 you know, um rack my memory on it well uh, nft it's nfts NFT. thank you yeah oh, non-fungible NFT. token non-fungible or, tokens right so they're stuff like, like that you would just be like yo get this blockchain then... all backed by blockchain these were blockchain based tokens that were yes i remember this now and blockchain had, had its moment in the sun just like crypto did um not to say the blockchain is blockchain is not actually invaluable at this point in in the market but uh, and and that's not necessarily our NFTs. NFTs have not, they have basically died off, but they're not entirely wiped out as a commodity in, in, in the marketplace. And neither, certainly neither is cryptocurrency. Um, but I will say they have absolutely lost most value because they don't, they don't, the, the part of the, I think in my, this is kind of a rudimentary opinion, but in my opinion, I think the most, the most valuable thing that you can do in a marketplace is to, um, develop the reliance of confidence by investors. Mm -hmm. Like you have to have people believing in your product or I'll, I'll tell you what currencies on, too. on paper too, uh, at least what they're doing with the penny stocks looks really good. So you have a stock that is absolutely garbage. It's not even, it shouldn't even exist. Like, you know, uh, being ran out of two, with two guys in a garage. Granted, there's been crazier stuff that's come out of two, two guys in a garage. Like, it's not something that can totally fail. But so you just inflate that, right? They, there's no investment in it. Someone or a couple like whales, as they put it, put that investment in. And then they go, look at these stocks. Look at how high up they are. Right. Because it's only penny stocks. So if they buy 10,000 shares of it. Yeah. And that's why that's what they were doing too is like, because yeah. he would buy, I don't know if, if he specifically did this, but he, um, you know, he was working at a boiler. He was working at a, um, in like a more like a boiler room brokerage. Like he was kind of like, this is kind of where he got his start um, under Mark Hanna. And then obviously like the, the, as it shows in the film, like the black Monday uh, uh, stock market crash, the worst crash in, in one single day that had been experienced since before the depression um, basically kind of wipes him out. And he takes all the skills he, he developed there. And I don't know if he actually, cause when the penny stocks are being bought up, it doesn't really, the film doesn't. And, and the film kind of does a great job of being like kind of ambiguous in, in the details around. I always thought that, you know, I assumed that the book kind of tackled these details a lot more than the film did. And the film acted as a film, a piece of art and entertainment, which I really appreciate from Martin Scorsese. He did not allow his viewers just like in Goodfellas um, and just like in Casino and just like in any other mob movie he's made at this point, you don't get caught up in the details. You don't get in the weeds of the details. He's got a story to tell and he wants to tell it in the most stylistic 
artistic way he possibly can. And some of those details are kind of left um, for the audience to go discover, which as I'm curious, I don't think he actually bought penny stocks. Um, I actually think that the pump and dump scheme that he was involved in was mostly that he got his investors to buy up penny stocks, which would artificially um, boost the price on those mm-hmm. shares. And then, sell, and then w- when his investors would try to sell them off, he would just pivot them. He would allow them to not just sell, they would sell off the shares. He would keep the commission, but then he would reinvest their funds into another set of penny stocks that weren't worth what he would just tell them it was worth way more than it was pivot their entire investment portfolio into something that was worth um, that was actually worth a lot less, but do it in a way that actually did boost the price. So he could actually on paper say these, the price on these shares is higher than it actually should be. um, And he would take the commission at those higher prices. So um a a tactic that has been used it seemingly on Wall Street for decade after decade after decade, very, very dishonest and extremely like immoral and cost. Um, I mean, let's put it to you this way, Errol. What do you think about the the artistic dis- decision of Scorsese to kind of leave out the side of the story? Um, he there are no cut shots, there are no um edited um you know, smash cuts to broken families or men who are suicidal men who have basically um, lost their mortgages or lost their homes or lost their businesses. Like there's none of that. This is pure glamor. Right. And I mean, what do you think about that decision by Scorsese to go that route and really just kind of put a lot of glitz and glamor on the story instead of actually telling the darker, darker side of things? Um, It's because we are, we are the wolves. The audience is too. We're on their side. Agreed. Right. I think that's what he's aiming at. Yeah. We're, this is a story for us. Like it's a, well, it's a cautionary tale, but it's a cautionary tale on the other side. And you don't, it's not the, there, there's no moral lesson. <laughs> like there, there was never any kind of empathy in the movie. That's not the lesson that we were ever going to learn. But um, it is like considering it all. Like, yeah, this is, destroys whole thing. Like the one guy, he's like, "Oh, my wife's gonna divorce me." They probably literally got divorced. Oh, for sure. Well, there was one. There was one story. I, I believe there was one set of dialogue in the film. Um, and I'm actually gonna start pulling this stuff up just to get myself um, ready for quotes and such. But there's one story in the film where they they actually had two two guys in the brokerage. Um, <laughs> It's hard not to laugh at some of the stuff. <laughs> See, that's yeah. The film does a brilliant job of 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 uh, making making comedy out of very dark stuff. But I think at one point it's indicated that a man's wife was double teamed, <laughs> and it's yeah. It's no, so just, the, and then the he only, kills him, and then the guy kills himself. Yeah, the like, only guy that I was gonna say the only guy that actually killed himself is the person he, that sucked off everyone in the job yeah yeah like her, her husband. Horrible. yeah it's, the film is a master class in and i think this is what um I, I i listened to an interview today and scorsese was like so there was a lot of um we'll talk about like she the, had to have told him that she sucked off everyone in the office and had proof yeah i mean I don't know, the details on that are like it, it's just no, a that dark, was it i cracked the code the film is dark for a reason 
and the film doesn't leave you it doesn't want to personalize the film like like scorsese's not looking for you to like what you're talking about right there like just that anecdote he doesn't want you to think about that he wants you to just like digest the film and the culture of the film on like all of its debauchery and like absolute heinous behavior he wants you to just kind of digest it and very clearly he does a great job of this but he also wants to do one another thing that i think he super accomplishes and he accomplishes a little bit in goodfellas because i will say this um i rewatched goodfellas in the last day or, to, or day or so because i've seen this now twice for the for the podcast but i really wanted to kind of compare it to goodfellas because i, I think that this is like this is his 21st century okay, yeah no i can see that you know what I was thinking? Uh, have you ever seen the movie uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? I have not, actually, surprisingly. But that's the uh, that's the David Mamet um, basically play that was turned into a film. And it's supposedly a masterpiece. Have you seen it? You, it's a play, right? I've um, I, I've watched it a little bit. That's more real like, estate than, than Wall Street, though. That's the only difference, I think. Well, the, either way, this is... A, Wolf business it's just it's just glenn gary glenn ross with cocaine yeah or glenn gary glenn ross on cocaine if he yeah just just tap just turned up to 11 right yeah and i i, I well the, the major difference for me is is i think that this is tackling a much much deeper and more sinister side of american culture and I would say I haven't seen Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, but I've seen like I kind of get the tone of the film just from like clips, those very famous clips, especially with Baldwin. And um, this film feels a lot more to me like he's looking to just assault you. Like Scorsese was looking to assault you with the most debauchery, the the most disgusting behavior, the most like. Um, crude nasty behavior and like really kind of produce almost no likable characters in the film yeah this is um, straight Sodom and Gomorrah oh what did I say the other day I was like it's 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 high end it's always sunny in Philadelphia yeah it's like it's it's always sunny in Philadelphia but everyone's rich yeah it's yeah. it's always sunny in Philadelphia with your pinky out <laughs> yeah with your pinky up and like because th- these guys are not doing anything more anything they just have access to well it is different because like it's hedonism right this whole film is about hedonism Dude, and glutton Sodom and Gomorrah. it really is it's Sodom and Gomorrah it's glutton it's it's um it's um it's it's hedonism it's also like on on another level it's also just um it's about American greed in this very deep way. That's like, um, uh, I think that I thought, I thought a lot of people have problems with this. If you read about the film, there are a lot of like, um, there's a lot of critiques that the film kind of, what is always said about the film is that it glamorizes the lives of the individuals in the film. For me, it's not that I think that you guys are all falling victim to Martin Scorsese's trick. Anybody who has this opinion that the film is like too, uh, it makes it look too good. It makes it look too like enjoyable. These these are heinous, awful people who the made only, terrible the decisions. The person glamorized is the uh, is the uh, is the agent at the end. Well, not the only person who's like. Granted, you do see the whole thing, but the only person who has his, his like comeuppance moment at the end, the after the climax, is the uh, he's the guy sitting there on the train. I don't even think that's a comeuppance. It's almost like a that's almost like another shot at him. Like, oh shit, I am still on the subway. 
I took it differently. I, I saw it differently. No, I took he, it. He's like, yeah, I am on the subway, but like, look at where you are. And then it sh- goes to him and he's on the, he's on the bus too. He's on a subway, but he's one way to prison. Granted the yeah, prison. But, yeah. But then, it cut, but then from my perspective, it's more like, yeah, he's on the subway. Like, yeah, this dude's going to prison, but he's getting a four year sentence. And then he's going back to his wealth. And he's also going to white collar prison. And this dude's still on the subway. I thought I took it differently. I th- I saw it from the perspective of like he's and we're jumping right to the end of the film, which is probably not great podcasting. But like I do want to it's important to, to kind of naturally flow through the like the messaging of the film is that I, I do think that Martin Scorsese, this is what makes him a true genius because he's done this with he's done this. I mean, think about this. He did this in the 60s. He did this in the 70s multiple times. He did this in the 80s multiple times. He did this in the 90s uh, probably multiple times, almost definitely multiple times. He did this in the first decade of the 2000s multiple times. He did this in the 2010s multiple times. And now he's almost, and now he's even done it once in the 20 in 2023 in this decade. So that's five decades this man has done this. And what I mean by this, and I'll elaborate, is that this man has made people controversialize his films and talk about his films as though they're they're not to be seen and which all, all, always does the same thing it makes more people go see the film and it, he always gets the audience and he gets critics and he gets people who are trying to do shit like this make you know sit down and have a podcast about it he does the same thing and he always gets people to think his films are more controversial than they are because they don't listen to him in interviews and he doesn't always do interviews he doesn't do a ton of them but when he does i think that this man was just like i'm going to show you the most glamorized awful behavior you can see and you won't look away and i'm going to make not only that but i'm going to try to make you envious of it right like how much how much of this film are you just like jesus like because it's hedonism i mean that's what hedonism is is like you just you just give yourself over to like constant indulgence when i first saw it i was like this is the coolest thing ever but yeah like, re-watching it now i'm like this they're horrible stupid I'm but like, isn't that a isn't that amazing that you could watch a film and have two completely polar opposite opinions of it and what and the behavior that goes on in it you could be like wow this is like you could have a cool perspective on it. Like these guys are rich. These guys get whatever they get any sexual partner they could possibly want at any time. They get to do nothing but drugs. There's no consequences for any decision that they make. They have endless wealth, endless resources. They see the whole world. They're, they're, they're powerful too. They have that power greed too. Like it's just hedonism all the way down. It's just constant indulgence. And then you look at it when you get a little bit older, 10 years later, and I had the same reaction. I was just like, this looks awful. This looks like hell. This looks like literally hell on earth. It looks like basically it looks like the um, it looks like what would happen to you if you became a drug addict. It looks like like because you just see the underlying of all this. It's just like like because he even does the, you know, the one scene where he basically runs down. <clears throat> I could actually um I'll, I'll read it off right here. This is a quote from Belfort. This kind of jumps out the film pretty early. He says, on a daily quote, I, on a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my quote-unquote back pain, 
Adderall to stay focused, Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine, well, because it's awesome. But all of the other, but of all the drugs under the God's blue heaven, here is one that is my absolute favorite. See, enough of this shit will make you invincible, able to conquer the world and eviscerate your enemies. Now, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. He snips cocaine and then picks up a hundred dollar bill. And that is genius filmmaking. Genius filmmaking. You watch him snort cocaine off a desk, list off the most intoxicating, addictive chemicals on the planet. And he picks up a hundred dollar bill and indicates that that was the addiction. That was the strongest addiction of all of them was his addiction to money. And like that is the film. uh, That is the message of the film in terms of how Martin Scorsese chooses to, to show you all of the things that money bought in this film and let, let the addiction to power and wealth undergird all of the all of the debauchery right like i think that's just the message is like the hedonism only goes so far but you can't have hedonism without wealth and how wealth can be purely destructive yeah no exactly that's um and it's um like the gluttony thing like there is never enough never right you never pull out no, and that's that's what McConaughey says. He says you can't let them pull out. You can't let them sell shares because then it becomes real. Because if they sell shares, then you have to give them money back, and then it becomes a real then it becomes a real investment. It's you almost know? like a, it's almost a, like a Belfort didn't want to pull out of the game too because that it would have been real. Yeah, and I also think that like it seemed like Belfort just like this this just snowballed. I also thought that it was funny that his like. His relationship with uh, the one guy, like he, well, he loved Donnie, and we should talk about. Uh, I should run down the casting um, in terms of who plays who. So Leonardo DiCaprio, with probably one of his best performances of all time, as Jordan Belfort in the lead of this film. Uh, Jonah Hill as Donnie Azoff, Margot Robbie as Naomi LaPaglia, who is his um, starts off as his uh, mistress and then turns into his inevitable wife. Matthew McConaughey comes in as Mark Hanna. He's really in the film for less than 10 minutes, I think in total. Um, Kyle Chandler plays the FBI agent, Patrick Denham, uh, Robert, Rob Reiner playing Max Belfort, uh, Jordan Belfort's son, or I'm sorry, father, John Bernthal playing Brad Bonick, John Favreau playing Manny Riskin, uh, Jean Dujardin, um, plays the Swiss banker or the French banker. I think it's Swiss, right? He's Swiss in the film, I believe. Oh yeah. Cause and that's he's a, French. The Swiss I believe banker. he's a French actor, but I think he plays, yeah, he's a French actor. He plays the Swiss banker. Um, it's just a, a monster cast with unbelievable performances, but what, let's start with the big man himself, like the front front and center. What, what are we talking with Leo here? Is this, um, Errol, you lead it off. What's your favorite? Is this your favorite performance from Leo or is this kind of top three? Where, where does this rank? for you yeah no this this has to be up there um just because you see like the you really see like the downfall like he he portrays it really well like or at least a downfall he starts off just like as a sweet innocent person and then that changes in like five minutes and then it's all downhill from there yeah um yeah no that's um it's yeah it probably has to be his best uh, i because i haven't seen a Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I I love The Revenant, but I just don't think it has like as much dialogue as this. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah, I think the performance in The Revenant gets a lot of 
I'll say this, like this film is deeply important because I actually think the reason that DiCaprio wins the Academy Award for The Revenant is because he didn't win for this film. And I think the Academy was just like, that was a mistake. Um, in my opinion, this is this is the best performance of DiCaprio's career to date, to date, even including Killers of the Farmer, which I adore. And uh, we still have a little conversation on it at some point down the road once you get your eyes on it. But uh, it's it's a fantastic performance in that film. But this this has unbelievable demand like this role and demanded more from him than any other role I think he's ever played. Um, I think that he doesn't he, do drugs. No, it's all vitamin B, right? Well, no, like he just, you know, how easy it is to like act drugs if you like if you've done them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, you at least have like an idea. Like, no, he's clean sober. Well, I don't know if he's sober, but he's definitely not a drug user and like a hard. If you're in Hollywood, and I feel like if you do anything legal, you're sober. That's I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, probably we don't know his. I don't know his personal life. I I presume he's probably mostly sober. He seems like he's got a good head on his shoulders. Um, I don't think that he's a drug user or not, certainly not the type of that's going on in this film. So he's definitely doing some pretty intense acting and I buy every scene. He smokes crack with, with uh, Jonah Hill's character. And like that looked like a dude smoking crack, like for the first time. Excitability. Oh my God. It's an unbelievable scene. Unbelievable scene. You know what I wanted to say just because I was going through the, uh, the filmography of him. This is uh this is also catch me if you can on cocaine too. A little same. bit, right? The glut, like the greed, right? He's just you know what I, enough. Just wants you to know catch. What I don't, you know what I don't like about uh, either of these movies, though. Probably more so for uh, catch me if you can. Ooh, let's hear it. Mainly, they're like lies. Yeah, he's just a bona fide liar. Yeah, like they're so these jobs, the two people, like they were like con men, like that was their. Mm-hmm. So like this is true. I'm yeah. supposed to believe the story that they're get the you're trying to juice whatever lies you were doing before for the last yeah. bit yeah, of money that play, you con man. You know, yeah, they kind of use that cheap trick of like the unreliable narrative narrator, narrator um, mm-hmm. sorry narrative slash narrator, where mm-hmm. like even in the beginning, like he's talking about the the Ferrari and it changes colors. Remember, it's like, oh, it's a white. Wait, no, it was a green or something. Right. Like it changes colors. I like, okay, that's a little bit of a trick to kind of get the audience like involved. Uh, but I, I do still think the character. Well, here's the crazy part: is that when the film came out, it was so absurd, and I think people were just like so bewildered by the film um, that there was a lot of fact checking going on. People went back and started paying attention to Jordan Belfort's story. They started reading his book and fact checking some of the claims that he was making in the film. A lot of this film and not so much the film, but definitely the book and what goes on in the film. I think that a lot of the scenes were done um, that to kind of build up the chaos and make it even crazier. A lot of the stories and claims from the book were encapsulated in one scene instead of stretched out over time. So like, I do notice this film has like an obsession with like public intercourse. (laughs) I don't really understand. I don't understand what was going on there. Like this is the rush. These, 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 this is the rush. These guys need. They're so addicted to like adrenaline and sex and drugs and money that like, they would have to like, in, they would have to engage in like sexual acts in front of each other. Like very bizarre. 
Margot Robbie and just pulled his cock. He out. literally just pulled his pulled his peen out. And he's like, "There's cranking. no way I'm going to be able to have sex with this girl." But it's I'm just going to crank my carrot it. right here. He just starts waxing his carrot right in front. Of her. I mean, it's just it's it's unbelievable. <laughs> and he, he's met with thunderous applause. Oh, not only thunderous applause, but also like the the absolute disgust of his like significant others, who is also his cousin. By the way, you know how bad you got to do to disgust your cousin, your cousin wife, your cousin wife. You got to do some shit, man. You got to play penis out in front of other people. Some, yeah, she put up with some stuff. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, fascinating, insane, insane shit. Um, I will At least say he stayed with her and just said he. Yeah, well, he did. T- listen though, but the scene when they're on the boat, he totally does does not give a fuck what happens. He goes, "I'm a fucking master diver." When the boat's sinking, <laughs> yeah, like, I'm a master diver. And then and then he also says, "Like he's like, there's fucking three feet of water down there." And like, I don't know what happened to his wife. His wife was on the boat with them, and she he doesn't give a fuck about her. And no. apparently, neither does the film because they do not show what's going on with her or where she is. She's just missing on the sinking boat the capsizing ship and they don't show where and he's just up in the dry section like just trying to survive and DiCaprio is fucking screaming at he him. He goes back and he gets the quaaludes but he doesn't even think about his wife. No he's not worried about the wife because and neither is neither is DiCaprio. He's I will not die sober. Get those fucking loads. <laughs> like he's just boss. going for it. It's an incredible performance and an incredible scene. Um what do you think about let's dive into it though. What do you think about Jonah Hill? What's his uh do you think the performance warrants the uh critical acclaim that it got uh yeah i think so because you could definitely well so you could definitely tell so it's it was almost like a meta casting because you do know like the backstory behind it oh like he's uh, like no fill me in yeah so he wanted to be in this movie more than like anything like he is like i want i know to he took it. 60 grand like he took a very very low amount he will, of i believe it's the lowest that you're technically able to take in the in while you're in a guild or in the mm-hmm. acting guild or something like that like it's but the i lowest. do I, I did read that he he took uh the points on the film in turn the box office points so he got paid more than 60 grand like this movie right. made this movie but, made. I should hold on before you before you take that further down the road here. I just want to say, the film had a budget of a hundred million, which is amazing that they kept that budget as low as that. Yeah, all that coke. Yeah, all the money. Well, well it's all vitamin, vitamin D. I, but, yeah. vitamin, what? No less. A hundred million is unbelievable that they made this movie on that budget, and we'll get into some of how they managed to get that hundred million, and probably actually used more than that, but no less. Uh, pulled in another an additional on top of that hundred million. Uh, the box office was four hundred and six point nine million, so four hundred seven million bucks it took back. So it, it profited over three hundred million potentially, but with some caveats that we'll get into. Um, Sixty grand that Jonah Hill took definitely turned into a lot more than that um, at the end of the day. Well, yeah, but um, him just agreeing to like the lowest amount it was just like he was like, I want to do this like no matter what. Like I don't even like he didn't necessarily care about the money. And it's almost perfect for like his character, like his just as some schmuck who is just really excited to be a part of the stuff. It didn't, yeah, the money was like the original thing, but then he was just on for the ride. Yeah, there's also a story that he like he like um, he had he wanted to audition for it, and I think Scorsese wasn't necessarily like told him that he had to, but he he like insisted upon auditioning, and then I think he told I think he was quoted as saying to Leo DiCaprio that like. I want you to tell Marty if he doesn't give me this role, I'm gonna fucking kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and Scorsese of all guys like probably took that with a big smile and was like, yeah, that's fucking awesome. Um, and brought him on board and he was great, man. I think, I think there are a few moments where I think I, because I'm just so familiar with Jonah Hill, pretty serious Jonah Hill or not, not, not someone that this, this role is not serious, but like, so like he did Moneyball before this, which was like of his first serious role. And it was very good. He was a great actor. I mean, he's a, he's a great actor period. Um, but I think I, there was a few moments in this film because it is a very comedic performance where I was just like, Oh, I'm seeing Jonah Hill instead of Donnie Azoff in this moment, because I just, I'm so familiar with Jonah Hill as a comedic actor. Um, it kind of took me out a little bit, but not too much, not enough to like ruin the film for me. I'm definitely, I was definitely still in, but and I think the performance was, was excellent. Same um, grape. Yeah. Like, it's just like, Oh yeah. I kind of recognize you. Is that what you got from it? Like, I recognize you as a comedic actor and I kind of know right. your comedic muscle is a little bit. And maybe like, you know, I recognize Leo too. And so, but I'm still like, he had me, but I've never seen Leo this funny. This is the funniest he's ever been in a film. Yeah, probably. I think so too. I think it's his best comedic performance bar none. And I think it's, um, well, let me tell you, let me ask you, Errol, do, this film is labeled as kind of like a black comedy crime film is how it's technically categorized or, or genreized. Is this film funny? Yeah. Yes. Is the answer. I yeah, think this, it's, um, this movie's it's, damn funny. It's, it's beyond damn absurd. Funny. Yeah. And it's surreal. Is, like, the fact that it's like based off a of truth. So it's like, it's realistic to believe that people were just this awful. Yeah. And I think that, laughing at the film is easy it is surprisingly easy given how you know awful it is i mean mcconaughey is just is killing me as soon as he's on the screen i'm dying i'm laughing the whole time i can't help it and i know that like i mean he's sitting there telling just telling this dude he's got to jerk off like he's having a full-fledged very serious right in the middle like, of it you need to jerk off at least twice a day like you got to clear the mustard or whatever <laughs> he's like he's, <laughs> he's, he's the levels rise up I mean, I mean it's just absurd i think that's like the surrealism is like um is pretty fantastic and i think leo just killing it um throughout the film i mean it, i don't know that he's ever been this funny um, in my personal opinion, I think it's one of the most yeah. asking that, I guess asking if this movie is funny, I only ask that question because I think it's a pretty obvious yes. But there, I think that people who take this film as like a, they see the film and they want to take it as a commentary on American greed and like feel bad about laughing, laughing at it, I think actually miss the point of the film. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And like, this is like, this is how genius I think Scorsese is. I think he's doing what comedians are supposed to do in this life, like and are kind of not doing as much these days, but used to do, which is I'm going to make you laugh at the most uncomfortable shit I possibly can. And that's why it's funny. It's funny because of how inappropriate it is and how like dark it, starts it is. Off and he's just blowing cocaine up a prostitute's bow. I mean, that literally is the opening scene. Yeah. No, sorry. The opening scene is midget tossing. First yeah, I guess. It's, yeah, it's yeah, little I guess. people throwing is probably the new. But sorry, I grew up in a time where that was just known as 
shouldn't <laughs> just be known as anything, but yeah. Dwarf Tarzan, um, yeah. I do and just to just to um segue that scene when they're just talking about like the little people, like they're like literally treating them like animals. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, like I, uh, Jonah Hill's character, Donnie, he's like, um, He's like, yeah, no, I, I guess you can't look him in the eyes. You gotta like look him in the, at the chin because the eye contact. That's like something that like with like primates, <laughs> like because <like, laughs> they look and they see it as aggression. He's like, they also get around, they gossip and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, awesome. We gotta, it's fucking he's awful. like, we'll just they look at they they end the conversation with, we'll just treat them like they're one of us. That is what they agree it's on. So awful, yeah. <laughs> like, but you can't help but laugh. I mean, it's just right, like, every just, bit of delivery is just so funny. It's so absurd. It's just so absurd, and they they have they have no absolutely no hesitation about like being terrible. And I think that's what makes it funny because they're just willing to go there. And I think um, I think a lot of like the audience. I think that like there's been like a lot of critical like I, I don't know this movie will age greatly because I think the I think the culture will kind of like these hopefully desensitize a little bit I think this was at a time where like things were kind of starting to ramp up in terms of like cultural sensitivity to like a lot of different things and I don't think that's good for art you know I don't think you can really push boundaries like the way that Scorsese's been doing for like fifty years like mm-hmm. this dude made Last Temptation of Christ like which was which he received he was he received death threats for, for, you know, 10 years. Um, like this dude's been pushing the boundaries for a long taxi driver is about a isolated potential mass murderer. Like, uh, yeah, he's thinking of being like a political terrorist. Yeah. I mean, literally like, that's what I mean is like, he's just been, and he also, you've seen raging bull, like raging bull is just like, is De Niro just being a domestic monster like in every way possible and showing domestic violence in a very real and scary way with children screaming and wives getting beaten and brothers and and just familial terrorism in a way that like is not comfortable. Like he's never made a comfortable film. I would argue that I just got done rewatching Goodfellas. Goodfellas glamorizes violence and crime 10,000 times more than this film. This film is absurd and surreal and, and just maniacal and and very clearly satirical too, right? Like there's a very clear satire going on. You watch Goodfellas, I get the sense that Scorsese was like, these dudes are fucking cool. And I'm going to show you how goddamn cool they are. And I'm going to also show you how how they destroyed their lives by trying to, by being just absolute cowboys of, of crime and American, American crime specifically. Where these guys are, they make the, he makes these guys look like absolute maniacs and clowns. It's a clown show, right? It's a carnival in a lot of ways. Not to not to actually not, not that's not meant to be a callback to the pre- the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's um, I yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a circus. It's um, right. Uh, it like I said, it's just a. You were saying earlier, it's just like hedonistic. It's just to look into Sodom and Gomorrah. If you if you allow people, it, the money allows people to be as bad as they would want to be, and they end up just actually being shitty. 
Yeah, I've always heard that like money. Uh, I've heard the the well, it's it's more like a financial theory. It's not ever been proven, but money just magnifies whoever you are. If you're a bad person and you get money, you'll 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 just be a worse person. If you're a good money, if you're a good person and you require acquire money, it will magnify your goodness. Like if like, and it just makes you more of who you are instead of yeah. But what kind of jobs attract people that are just like yo, we're just here to make money now? Yeah, great people. So they actually that's not true. I don't think that's true because I think there are wealthy people in this world who do like really, really good things for their community and they build up and they kind of reduce poverty in their in their immediate. I'm just saying it's not like a like being a stockbroker isn't going to be like someone's like, I want to make a change. Oh, listen, (laughs) listen, the whole fucking film is specifically about who gives a fuck. He literally says at one point. I'm going to solve all I'm going to have you all solve your problems by getting rich. If you're if your landlord is asking is about to evict you, uh, pick up the fucking phone and get dialing like this is a this is the theme. Pick up the phone and start dialing and get rich because every problem you have will be resolved by the money you acquire and the wealth you acquire by picking the fucking phone up and cold calling. That is the that is the message of the film is that richness and wealth and a pure unadulterated focus on acquiring wealth will solve all of your problems. And in actuality, all it does is made for Jordan Belfort. It made nothing but more problems for him because he basically his his all of his addictions got out of hand. The more the the more rich he got, the worse his addictions got. Mm-hmm. And I think he's actually been pretty – speaking of Belfort, we should talk a little bit. He does have a podcast, and he's actually a pretty public person now. Um, have you heard any of his interviews? No. He's got a podcast called like The Wolves Den or something. He's, he's like a very staunch Republican conservative voice, um, I think, for the most part. Um, I haven't really listened to him speak, but um, I mean, listen, I respect what he did here with the honesty about like how awful he was. Um, I think that takes a lot, right? That takes that takes. Would you would you say that that's a good quality to like publicly own the horrendous behavior that you displayed in your working years? No, no. Okay, you think he's a piece of shit? Yeah, he's a. It's definitely a uh, shyster, like a good boys club. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did all this shit, and I had so many, so much coke and hookers, but now I'm better. No, I'm clean. No, oh, so you think he's like he's like a bad guy, and now he's trying to monetize what a bad guy he was just to just to make up for right. it. But you can you can do it, but you gotta calm down at some time. But I think you know he definitely looks back on the glory days of just ripping people off and doing all those drugs. He might. I haven't listened to enough interviews. I won't say one way or the other because I actually I don't know. I I would hope that that's not the case. I would hope that it's the opposite and that that's he's and also remorseful. The, 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 this is just how I kind of feel too, but I like, I don't know. I'll have to listen to him. I'll have to listen to what he's, what he said. Well, I, I never just cared enough of me being honest, but a lot of, uh, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of grifters go to like, well, I mean, I guess we're doing it too. Like just go to like podcasting and stuff. Yeah. I mean, we're just spitballing on what we know about the film and that's, that's the goal here. Um, let's, let's... he's a con man, so I don't trust him. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can I can appreciate that. Let's um let's dive into a little trivia on the film. Um 
let's see. We we talked about uh, Jonah Hill taking a massive pay cut. He only made sixty k on the film, but I do believe he took uh, box office points, which probably made him several million dollars. Probably something on the order of that. Um, some of the Scorsese has confirmed that some of the editing editing is on purpose, especially the scenes in which one or more characters are high. Every time Jordan is seen taking drugs, the scene that follows have have continuity issues and often flow oddly. Um, Jordan Belfort coached Leonardo DiCaprio on his behavior, especially instructing him in the various ways he had reacted to the quaaludes he abused, as well as his dope-induced confrontation with Danny Porsche. All right, let's talk about that scene for a second. Um, what do you think about the physical performance from DiCaprio crawling out of that country club in his Lamborghini? I did learn something interesting um, in an interview with Scorsese. They didn't realize when they started shooting that the Lamborghini – that the doors opened up. So (laughs) DiCaprio was like, how the fuck am I supposed to open these doors? And Scorsese was just like, you got to use your feet. So he (laughs) kicked the fucking door up. (laughs) It's a a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the best moments of the performance (laughs) from my perspective. Um, I mean, and then when, and then like when he makes it back to the house and Jonah Hill's like, he sees him, he's like, you're fucking good, huh? Are they good? He's just so happy to see him. And he's just like, they're, they're both so fucking high. He's like, you're fucking good, huh? And uh, Jordan's just like, get off the fucking phone. And he, and then all of a sudden he's got like the, that like secret special emergency vial of cocaine, and you hear the fucking Popeye music. Popeye going I guess that was an accident too. They had decided like last minute. I guess Popeye genuinely was on a TV. The kids were watching it in the as like extras in the background, and Scorsese like kind of hit this and was like, "Oh, let's just include that. Just put that in there with the spinach and everything. It just fucking worked perfectly." <laughs> spinach. This, he's dying. This is what I'm saying about Scorsese, though. That 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 type of decision making is like, okay, you, you just see the art and everything, and when you see everything through an artistic lens, like you can just connect dots that work so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a genius, and in, in my opinion, he, I know I've said this on the Silence podcast, and I, I will mention um, if anybody's interested in our discussion on the film Silence from uh, a few years after this came out in 2000, what was it 16? 16 it came out. Silence came out in 2016. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. Um, an unbelievable, that's a, a masterpiece. That film has continued to like really resonate with me and age very, very well. I think it'll be one of those films people will appreciate a lot more. I think we mentioned this in the podcast. It's a, it's a masterpiece and a very much obviously more serious film about a lot more serious, um, you know, concepts and ideas. But, um, I thought about something when I was comparing the films because these are the two Martin Scorsese films we've talked about so far. What do you think about the idea that Silence could have been an even better film with DiCaprio in the Andrew Garfield role? Nope. No, you think no, huh? Nope. You don't think he could have pulled that off? Nah. Really? Interesting. What makes you so uh, opposed to that? Because Andrew Garfield beat the shit out of that role. He was very good in that role. I know, and you know what? He's actually gotten a lot of 
Um, I was reading some like kind of critical analysis about that film fairly recently. And I, I don't think people loved him in that role. I thought he was excellent. I didn't think he was the problem with that film at all. I don't think there was much to complain about with that film, but I thought his acting was, his performance was pristine. Um, but anyway, maybe, I mean, I get, maybe I was like, uh, just blinded by like the subject matter, but that shit fucking brought me there, bro. Like that's, I thought, um, so here's the thing too. So when I was looking at the thing, and it's almost the same problem that uh, and these guys were able to accomplish what uh, what Jonah Hill wasn't. I was like, this is Kylo Ren and Spider Man. How are they going to save Obi Wan Kenobi? They disappeared, dude. Not yeah. even exactly. I don't even know. They're not even connected to being the same person at all. Like they totally disappeared into those roles. You were ex- that, and that's what I'm saying. For for the names there, like it's just like it. I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, the scene, the scenery of it. But I just think the the over overall the acting was absolutely phenomenal. And then like the the setting of it too. The, I think that movie is a masterpiece. Yeah, I do too. I think it's it's. And since we've talked about it, which we're, at, we're the goal of today is not quite talk about silence but i do encourage anybody to go back and listen to our our conversation about silence it's a very deep film with a lot of deep um concepts and ideas that scorsese wanted to kind of tackle um and it was the follow-up to this film and uh you know we've we've only done this is our seventh film in the series and we've already covered scorsese twice which speaks to what an absolute genius he is um but uh i do think that this is this is more of his style as much as silence is a master masterful film. This is like where he shines. It was almost like he made this film as like, I need to do something. I want, I need to scratch the itch that Goodfellas scratched. Do I think that this film is as good as Goodfellas? Obviously not. I I think Goodfellas, Goodfellas is genuinely one of the greatest American films ever made period. Bar none top, maybe top 10 films ever made period. Um, Whereas I don't think this film quite stacks up against that. Because see, Good Goodfellas is another movie that like really just sucks you in. Dude, I was just like I said, I just I just rewatched that for I don't know. It's probably like the fiftieth time I've seen that film in full. And I will say, I was telling my wife about this that as we were watching it, I'm like, and this film does have some of these tricks. I will say this. Um, I was saying two things. Number one. And this applies to both Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street, and they are easily to easy to compare because they do have similar styles. They're very yeah, quick. It's, a, it's the same exact, um, like a beginning, climax, ending, and then yeah, you've got a, on the wrist. You've got a character who is acquiring wealth and power through criminal means, and you're watching the glamour of that, and you're watching the crash of that, and it's it's a an arc and it happens before your eyes and you're titillated and, and tantalized by it the entire, the entire way through, because you think, because he shows you all the goods. He shows you the cash and the money and the women and the power and the relationship, the, the, just the, the dick swinging that's going on. Like, and he shows you it in the same way, just not Literal the same way, swinging. but it, literally yeah literally parts yeah that's unfortunate um but i will say i said i thought two things about goodfellas and one of which i will apply to this film is that number one both films genuinely feel like a drug experience they feel like when watching it they're like a drug it's like you ever notice like if you're scrolling reddit or social media or, or you know a social media of some kind you're scrolling and it sucks you in and then you like what the hell happened whoa where did all the time go these films do that 
And they do that, but they do that in a different way where it's not self-indulgent. You're just, you're just watching somebody else's indulgences and they both do that. They both like give you the experience of like, holy shit, this is like addictive to watch. Like I could disappear here for very easily. I don't, I don't want to turn this off. Like I'm, I have to continue. Like it's like, it's like a very bingeable. Like you can really just sit down and like kind of dissolve into the film. Um, But the other thing that I would say that was a little bit different is that Goodfellas kind of makes you feel good. And I know that the like last part of the film is kind of dark and gets a little weird and, and it's kind of like, but it's still like very exciting. Like, right. But, but it doesn't make you feel too bad. It doesn't, there's no real crash to it. Right. Like, you're kind of watching it and there's like kind of some core values in there. Like you see Paulie and, and Jimmy and they kind of, have, they kind of remember they, there's a scene in Goodfellas where they like sit down with Henry and they're like, you got to go back to your family. And you know, it's about your family. We got to keep up appearances. You, you, you can't be running around doing drugs like this. There's like a moral compass somewhere in there. Right. Like, yeah. like the mob boss is literally telling him stay away from the drugs, like get off the drugs. You get like, we don't deal with that shit. It's too dirty. Like, like there's a moral compass there somewhere. It's not, it's not perfect. These guys are serial killers. Literally. Right. They're literally serial killers. They are. And then he, he tries to give him like a, he's like at the very least, he's like, just please like do, do everything else. Just don't do drugs. And he couldn't even do that. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't sell the drugs. It's too much heat. Don't kill, don't kill the wrong guy. We don't need beef. Like there's something there that's like, Okay, this makes me feel. I like Paulie. Paulie's like got him. He's a bad guy, and he's and he's murderous and evil. But like Paulie's a, he's got a moral compass somewhere there. He's got at least something. He's got a standard that he's trying to uphold through his soldiers, his mob soldiers. This film has none of that. There's no charm. There's no charm. There's not a redeemable character in the film other than maybe Jordan's like first wife, or maybe his dad when his dad's like fucking screaming at people on the phone. <laughs> And then all of a sudden he just like dives into that like English accent. Cheerio. Hello. Like that, that stuff's funny. Who the fuck would call at this hour? Hello. Who's this here? Like that's Rob Reiner just killing it. And it's really funny. And like, he's, he's not redeemable because he's kind of like sort of in on the whole joke, but like these guys are all bad. They, and they only want to make decisions on behalf of their fucking impulses and their indulgences. Right. Yeah, which is and which is different than Goodfellas. Yeah, and I think that's like what's like sad about it. Like uh, as I grew up, mm-hmm. like it's just like yeah, these guys are like there's no end game. Yeah, right, and then they they just push it all the way to the absolute edges in the bo- the boundaries of like what is like beyond way past reason and into like the depths of like how awful can we get we're already in the red zone and like how far to the how far to the edge of this can we can we really push in yeah they take the extreme like we were saying with uh with donnie when they're in that place he didn't care about his wife and then when they were both sure they were going to die the, the, the one thing he goes, I'm, I'm not going to die sober. Like, he wasn't like, baby, I love you. This is horrible. I'm sorry we did this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if we get out of this, never again. He was like, get me to lose. 
Get me the fucking loot. Right now. He's like, I'm not going to die, so I'm going to die right now. The culmination of all my work, I need to. I just need to be high. That's all that matters. I have to get high right now because I'm not dying sober, so get me the fucking loot. And he's that's mouthing it to he's, <laughs> Yeah, he's literally mouthing it to him. Like, it is... Uh, this is what I'm saying is like, okay, we'll, we'll dive into a couple of, uh, of, of other scenes. Errol, one of my favorite scenes in the film is the um, DiCaprio speeches, like a few of those different speeches that he gives. I think this is some of his best work. And he said it, in a, I, I heard him speak in a few interviews that this was some of the hardest work that he's had to like prepare for because he kind of felt like um, – the, the, so like the extras and the actors, the supporting actors that are in those scenes were they they were scripted to cheer for him when he would speak. And this was like very confusing to him. He was saying that like he kind of started to feel like a cult leader because every time he would speak, they would they were scripted to do this. But they he still has to deal with the emotional reaction of like speaking a sentence from the script and then getting this like unbelievable praise. And there's something going on on an, like a psychological level that was like, he couldn't quite um, undo. It seemed like every time that they, that reaction, regardless of whether or not it's scripted or it's not, it is very visceral. They're all like, it's primal. they're obsessed with him. They're obsessed yeah. with him. They think that they, he's they, like, they think he's a God. Well, I thought that this was an interest. That's what makes him such a great casting because he fucking looks, he's handsome as shit. This is prime Leo too. This is not like in my mid forties, like, He's he's in his 30s and he's prime fucking handsomest dude in the world. And like this guy is fucking primetime Leo. And you could they never make him look bad. Like if you watch fucking Goodfellas, Henry Hill played by Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta looks bad in that film. Like towards the end of the film, his like eyes are sunken in. His skin looks bad. He's sweating. He's just he looks terrible. DiCaprio fucking never looks like that in this film. This dude looks like a million bucks from fucking the opening scene to the final scene. Even in this yeah, he almost looks better in prison than. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, the, does at his best. Dude looks like a million bucks. He's, he's like he's always fucking tan. His hair's slicked back. He's always wearing the best clothes. Like he's just he. They make sure that he always looks good because I think Scorsese was really trying to like paint the picture in this film about excess and how like he really wanted to tantalize and kind of like tease the audience into like, I want you to feel envy for these terrible characters and feel uncomfortable about it. Without like dissecting it or trying to dissect it too much. It's just that everything looks good on the outside. Right. It's all surface. Right. But the surface has to be polished. If it's all surface, then the surface has to be clean. Right. It was. Yeah, it was throughout the film, all the way through. And DiCaprio specifically, and even in his performances, like um, I guess that he he had also mentioned in the interview, and I'm kind of pulling this off the top of my head, so uh, pardon me for like paraphrasing a bit. But DiCaprio also mentioned that like he learned in those speech scenes that like he really truly had to become a salesman. Like he can't actually just read from the script. You gotta the charm has to reach across the aisle because he. You know, there is a difference between um, and you would pick up on this, like if he wasn't truly being like if he just read the script, but he was somewhat convincing, you'd just be like actor. But you got to you got to get the feel. You got to feel like what he's selling. You could buy. Um, And he fucking does that, man. I think this is one of the best acting performances of this decade of the 2010s. Um, 
I mean, this dude is going 110 miles per hour in this film. And he pulls no punches. I think he's convincing. He's fucking funny. You think he's cool as shit because he's like, you can't help but think he's cool. Like, he's a terrible the, um, guy. I think the ending scene boils down uh, like a salesman perfectly. Because uh, what he, he gets to a point where he's like, it's meta. He is no longer needing to sell like a physical idea, but he just needs to sell an idea. Like it's he he's there. He's asking people to sell me this pen. That is his job. He's not. He's a salesman asking someone to sell him something like. um. So pretty much like a there's a there's a point where like if you are a really good salesman, you could literally sell anything. And that's what it when they were stockbrokers, they were selling nothing. It was just all lies. Like, yeah, they're selling, they're selling, selling ideas. Right. And then he, I guess, learns a little bit, and he's like, "Oh, I can just actually sell ideas now that I've done all that." Yeah, but I, but you've got to truly sell it. You got to truly be. Right. And I guess that, like Belfort, the actual, the real Belfort, like, like DiCaprio learned a lot from him in some of his speeches, like how to truly be like charming as a salesman, which is a different charm. It's like a different thing. Um, oh yeah. But I mean, one of you, you mentioned, would you rank the, you wouldn't rank the Revenant over this. This is a better performance than the Revenant, right? This is, this is much better. Yeah, it's just more, there's just so much more to work with. Um, not to tangent it too much, but I want to hit this. This is a wild little um, piece of trivia from uh, IMDb. Um, quote, in the airplane bachelor party scene, actress Maria DeAngelis uh, I think is how it's pronounced. Maria DeAngelis. Uh, yes, um, she played one of the um, one of the hookers, right, in the airplane bachelor scene. Hold on, I gotta pull it back up. Uh, where is it? Okay. Um, said that the actress paired with Leonardo DiCaprio had to be replaced because she was shagging him too enthusiastically and realistically. "Quote: This girl was completely naked, sitting astride him while he was wearing a suit. She was very." How can I say enthusiastic? It wasn't acting. They had to keep telling her, you can't just like hump him. She was all over him. So they said, you're here because you're foreground. We're, we're just going to move you back a little. In the scene, DeAngelis was paired with PJ Byrne, who plays uh, Rugrat. Um, quote, he was the most naked of all the people in the scene, wearing a thong made out of candy Smarties with a sock over everything underneath. <laughs> Needless to say, I think he was he felt very uncomfortable, but he was very sweet. During the sex scene, we were ad-libbing, and PJ looked at me and said, Come over here, I want you to lick my sweet package or something like that. I replied, Make me. I told him, take take me by the throat because men like men like his character are pigs. They'll do whatever they want you to. I've known a few of them and dated a few. I said, You need me, you need to take me strong. You're not going to hurt me. Just take me. So he grabbed me by the throat. Meanwhile, the girl who was on top of Jonah Hill, she, she got, she really got spanked. She can't have been method acting because she was complaining so much. I've got broken vessels, broken blood vessels all over my ass. She said she wanted to be with the principal. So she got what she wanted. I was like, I mean, this is, this is what I'm saying. Wild set. This film is crazy as shit. And it's beyond. That, that that's absurd. Raw dog Leonardo. Yeah, I mean, this is just craziness. But the whole, not just him though. It's just everybody on set. They were just going for it, and I think Scorsese really kind of 
Um, we'll get into, I think we should actually move the conversation into this place because I think this is an important part of the story of this film. So this film kind of becomes its own self-parody in this way, right? And we'll, we'll, after this, we'll kind of dive into like the critical response from people and we'll start maybe read off a couple of reviews. But I want to touch upon the financing of the film because there's a little bit of controversy in terms of the, it's called the 1MDB scandal. This is the One Malaysia Development Burhad scandal, Okay. This is an important part of the story. This film was financed by the producer Riza Aziz, who was arrested in 2019 and faced, uh, and I think is currently facing trial over allegations that the Wolf of Wall Street's financing is connected to the One Malaysia Development Burhead scandal. The scandal um, is basically, in essence, uh, Riza Aziz basically scammed the Malaysian government out of tens of millions, potentially even hundreds of millions of dollars. And he actually, he is a producer on the film, which means that that, is, where that came from. That is a pure indication that this film was financed by the very corruption that it is trying to criticize satirically. Which is, like I said, it became its own self-parody because this guy, yeah, I mean, he, he basically, I mean, the, the scandal itself is like, is quite intense. And it basically, it's, it's a money laundering conspiracy from this guy who I think he basically kind of started with money from family or, or, or such. Um, I'll read here. The one Malaysia development, uh, Burhead scandal, the one MDB scandal um, is a corruption, bribery and money laundering conspiracy in which the Malaysian Malaysian sovereign wealth fund, one Malaysia development Burhad was systematically embezzled with assets diverted globally by the perpetrators of the scheme. Although it began in Malaysia, the scandal's global scope implicated institutions and individuals in politics, banking, and entertainment and led to the criminal investigations in a number of nations. The one MDB scandal has been described as one of the world's, one of the world's greatest financial scandals and declared by the United States department of justice as the largest klepto I'm sorry, kleptocracy case to date in 2016. Um, and Goldman Sachs was involved, and um, I mean, we we can do a whole other podcast based on, on who the players involved and exactly what went down. But needless to say, one of the Raziz, uh, um, I'm sorry, I forget his last name, Riza Aziz is his full name, was the one of the producers, and he was heavily involved. He was almost one of the. He, I think he was considered to be like an orchestrator of that scandal. Um, and he stole money basically from that fund, uh, the wealth fund, and used it to give Martin Scorsese basically endless funding to make this film happen, which is wild to think because this film might not be what it is without that funding. And I think this is how this film gets made because strangely enough, at 2013, I think I don't think they ran into too many issues with like censorship or anything like that because it is a very raunchy film. I, I think that they managed through editing the uh, Thelma Schoomaker, who is Scorsese's longtime partner in editing, I think that they managed to kind of edit their way around an NC-17 rating and get that R rating so they could get it into theaters and make money. But the funding to actually get the film made, that $100 million plus, you know, quote-unquote plus, with a question mark as to where, how much more was spent, that came from a fund of, of corruption, which is like what this whole film is about, which... Um, you know, is a little problematic. I mean, what do you think about that? As a just as a, a point of potential hypocrisy from Scorsese and financiers. Yeah, I think the guys who did it were just good salesmen. You think so? Well, I mean, there's implications that a lot of it had something to do with their ties to DiCaprio. Maybe DiCaprio was kind of like the bridge 
to getting this level of financing for the film. Um, I don't hold it too much against them. I don't think that they, they probably knew, they probably knew that the funds were no bueno. And maybe this is kind of part of, maybe they just decided we're making a film said, about corruption. <laughs> yeah. They said, quit. did you read the fucking script? <laughs> Send it. So <laughs> this damn movie's about, so let's just lift the floodgates. Maybe, um, maybe, but, Definitely an interesting like anecdote to the film that's important to mention at the very, very least. Um, let's move into some of the reaction to the film because I think there were some... Um, Belfort was pretty on board with the film. It seemed as though most... I think that he mostly was fine with how things were panned out. I think there was a lot of... The stories from the book and the stories from his life kind of got mashed into a couple of scenes altogether instead of kind of strewn out throughout his, his life. Um, and I guess his drug, his drug use was actually much worse than the film depicted, which is insane. I don't, I don't understand how a human being could be alive and have used drugs worse than the film depicted. I don't even, how is that even possible? Um, yeah, no, that's <clears throat> absurd. Yeah, no, that's uh, ridiculous. Um, the uh, critical response was very good, and those who didn't like it truly didn't like it, but um, those who did obviously considered it to be a masterpiece, which I, I personally think it is. Um, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone magazine named Wolf Wall Street the third best movie of 2013 behind 12 Years of Slave and Gravity, as aforementioned. Um, Richard Roper gave the film a B plus, calling it good, not great Scorsese. I could understand that being an initial reaction, but I think after, over the course of time, I actually think that I would think that that opinion might improve with some time. I would like to hear what he has to say more now. Um, would you agree with that, Errol? Do you think it's good, but not great Scorsese, or do you think it actually does kind of elevate to great? Hmm. That's a, it's a really good question, but I, I think it's, I think it's a great showcase of what he has to offer. Yeah, I mean, all the tricks are in there, like the smash cutting. And um, I was going to ask you, what do you, what did you think about the the music, the soundtrack? Like, this is Scorsese has a tendency to kind of like, especially with good films like Goodfellas and Casino, like where you're kind of moving scene to scene, and the music is like kind of like a almost it's a character in it of itself, and it really like it's bold. Like he's using popular music. Um, what did you think? Yeah. How, how did he do in this one? So I think maybe because the music was a bit too popular, I didn't like love it. But it was also um, it 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 kind of makes sense because that would be like a like the hit thing that was like going on, or at least like around all the time, you know. Yeah, I, but I, I didn't thought... like. I didn't love the score, I guess. I love the I love the blue stuff. I thought that that worked really well. It made things look, you know, he's trying to make these guys look cool, and like the blue is really the blue stuff, like the Howlin' Wolf and the, you know, the the Bo Diddley, like that that music worked really well. I did not understand for the life of me why he cut to a scene with a Foo Fighter song. Remember that scene? Does that scene stick out for you? It just randomly cuts to. I think it's like right after. Uh, they're like on the boat, I think maybe it, it just cuts to a scene with where the Foo Fighters are playing in the background and it just does not make sense. It stands out like a sore thumb. I couldn't understand that um, for a second. It did not fit with the rest of the soundtrack. It did not fit in the scene. I, I thought it was a pretty blatant error, but something that he definitely did not. He did not make that mistake in Goodfellas at any point. I thought that's kind of, Goodfellas is like the template. That's like 
him getting all the music right. You got Rolling Stones and you got freaking the band and Howlin' Wolf and, you know, uh, Robert, uh, 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 you got BB King and um, Harry Nilsson. Like all, all that music was like perfectly orchestrated in the film. This one was not perfect music wise. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Mm-hmm. It didn't work exactly the way that it probably could have. I thought that he made some, some, avoidable errors with the music in this film so definitely some points docked on that front um and like i said i guess uh errol what, what's your favorite what would be your favorite uh we haven't talked about margot roby and just i mean she's absolutely stunning in the film she's absolutely gorgeous uh in the film and she's she's a great actress right like she's she's fantastic what did you think of her performance um, I thought it was really good because I didn't necessarily like her, even though she is probably like the most likable person. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. She was she was like the most reasonable, but she was also like very kind of a piece unethical. of garbage. Yeah, yeah she's like pretty she unethical. Knew, she I mean, she broke up the marriage. Cheating. Yeah, she totally broke up the marriage. But the it kind of incited is, it. But towards the end, like she's not even wrong. Like his all 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 the stuff that happens uh, to Peter Belfort. Uh, in the movie culminates to him you know physically assaulting her and then trying to kidnap the child yeah that was a wild end right that was a pretty insane mm-hmm. that is like the, that's raging bull right that's the raging bull um side of the story that's like scorsese being like take a look this is the raging bull stuff like here's here's where this leads um mm-hmm. i thought it was cool though to see her early in the like her her career has really taken off and um Obviously, she's freaking Barbie at this point. So, like, um, I thought it was a good performance. Um, you kind of feel for her, but she's kind of trash too. I mean, you, you definitely don't like to see where things go at the end of the film. She's definitely treated with some uh, pretty heinous acts by uh, <clears throat> by DiCaprio or uh, Jordan Belfort. Um, but a good performance, I would say overall. I still thought the performance was good. She's she's kind of doing the whole uh, you know Long Island girl accent and i mean for an australian accent or an australian actor i thought she'd do a pretty good job um what was your let's let's hit our favorite uh scenes favorite performances we'll take a short break and then we'll knock out our uh rating and review errol give me your favorite scene from the film what's the one that sticks out to you the one that if you had to only watch one scene in the film you'd want to go back to it the one that sticks out is definitely the boat scene maybe just because i have like Thalassophobia. Mm, okay. I almost thought about tell, asking you to do a whole podcast on rogue waves if you don't recall to you. Really? We um, could do that. Oh, we can unpack that. No, Jones is crazy. But um well, if I had to choose another one. Hmm. Uh, yeah, no, on the the Matthew McConaughey one. That's a good scene. I, I actually love that pick. That's a he, really good pick. He lays it down like flat. He's like, every, he's like, shut the fuck up. He's like, you're chill. Just listen. Fuck everything. That's how it is. He's like, you just cold, do drugs, jerk off, make money. He's like, that's if you want to do this job, that's all there is to it. And then, like, he just, he just you tries to do get, that. Also, get fucked up the entire time. Right. Do drugs and drink the entire time. Because remember, he says he says to the waiter, he's just like, I want you to bring us uh, two martinis, two martinis, 
Um, you know how I like them straight up. And then after that, I want you to bring us two more every five minutes. And then I want you to bring them every two, every three minutes until one of us passes the fuck out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, God damn, dude. It's like the middle of Monday, man. And then the guy leaves and he just yeah. takes a snort of cocaine. He's like, Tootski? Tootski. Like, what the fuck is going tootski. on? <laughs> yeah. First, he thought that it was like a, like, you know, like, oh, is he testing me? He's like, no, I have water. He's like, uh, he'll learn. Yeah. <laughs> you want some cocaine? I think I think that's probably um, it, if that's not my number one, that's definitely it would be my number two favorite scene in the film. Um, for me, I think my favorite scene in the film, I really like the scene on the boat with the FBI agent, where he's just like, he's like, yeah, enjoy your enjoy your miserable fucking uh, subway ride back to your fucking miserable fucking wives. I'm gonna have. I'm going to have uh, Haley come here and lick caviar off my balls. <laughs> I like it. I like it from, um, dude, I don't know why it, we, I guess we do. I just see the, I see the detective in a different light. I think he's cool as shit. So no, I think he, no, I do too. No, I think I thought he was, and he holds his, he holds his fucking own. I mean, no doubt. I mean, he absolutely holds his own against Belfort in every scene and really kind of sticks it to him in quite an intense way. But, but I just thought the scene at the of- end was different. I thought kind of was probably a nice objective word because yeah, he did that, but still like, you know, <laughs> but he knew what he was getting into though. Um, but I like how they're sitting there and then like, everything's like chill. And then he's like, yeah, like, yeah, get off my boat. He's like, yeah, your boat. He's like, I'm about to, he's like, I'm about to impound this. He's like, you don't understand. <laughs> like, he's like, you know, what you're doing's wrong. He's like, get out of here. Get the fuck off my boat. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought I, I don't know. I, I would I would actually say I think my favorite scene in the film if I can only watch one scene, I got to see DiCaprio and Jonah Hill. You got to give me the whole scene cuz I know it's kind of multiple scenes, but like that whole sequence um on the lemon ludes. The delayed the delayed like delayed fuse or whatever of the lemon I, ludes, the I think ludes. I think that yeah, the uh the the lewd scene uh, not, the, the quaalude scene yeah uh is might be like the high water mark too because oh that's God. just crazy it's fucking insane like they're both just like genuinely all their motor skills are shut down you get the popeye in the background where he hits the cocaine and that's also his downfall too it's like the peak and he's also just like it's just the best physical physical performance of uh i mean no dicaprio was it was almost like a precursor to the Revenant because like it really is a purely physical performance of, of the film. And then he does the same, a similar physical performance in the Revenant where it's just like, it's not so much that he's like using his words or his emotions to convey what's going on. He's using his whole fucking body. And it's also fucking hilarious too, by the way, you know, what other scene, you know, what other scene I really like too. And it really just goes to show like how fucking shitty everyone is in that job. Let's hear it. The uh, when they actually like bring Steve Madden in, right? Yeah, yep. Steve Madden, yep. Like they've been told by Jordan so much, like "fuck you, pay me" to like everyone, like "fuck them." It's us or like it's us over them, like so "fuck you." So they bring in this new guy, and they're like, "boo!" Like you fucking suck. The and he's like, "Yeah, here's the shoe," and the girl's like, "that's fat lady shoe." <laughs> I was like, dude, like, let him talk. And then even Jordan's like, okay, everyone, we're a little excited. 
And he comes out and he's like, oh, this guy's going to make us so much money. I want to suck his dick right now. I'm going to do it. And yeah, then he's like, the fuck out of here. They land the fucking the IPO with Steve Madden, who's also, by the way, I should mention that was Dustin Hoffman's son, Jake Hoffman, uh, playing the uh, playing Steve Madden in the film. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they're just so heinous. Like everybody in this film is so fucking awful. Um, but uh, no, those are those are all great scenes. Um, what would you, what would you consider your favorite performance of all the actors in the film? I mean, for me, it's I'll I'll just say mine up front. It's is DiCaprio with a bullet. I don't think anyone could have possibly beat him. No, no. I, I thought Jonah Hill was great, but he did because he is a comedic actor. I also love the choice to make like, listen, these are all comedic performances from all these supporting guys. I didn't recognize any of them going into the film. Maybe now I do, I guess like Ethan Suppley. I've seen a, a million times because he was mm-hmm. in a lot of films, but like other than him, I didn't really recognize any of the guys in the film who are providing these great comedic performances. I actually think that really worked for them. You you know what actually might be my favorite like scene now that I think about it? Hit me. Like towards the end where he's he's shooting the infomercial. Oh and right. that's like literally oh, the high yeah. water. That's like literally the high water mark. He's and like, he all right, buddy. He's gets like, arrested. Yeah, he's, he's like, like, All right, get down. He's like, What what are you doing? No, it's shooting the commercial. He's like, No, come on. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was so genius. That's Scorsese. Yeah, he's like, right? That's yeah, Scorsese. Like, that is I, I that scene's fucking that's uh, that's I wanna, probably. I want to look up if that's uh, if that's actually if that was really what happened. Um, <laughs> he actually got like arrested during filming of an infomercial. Um, I don't know. I can't. I'm not going to be able to find. It looks like the some of the beach party scenes were like the, there's real footage of that stuff, but I don't know if I don't know if that actually was. Um, you know, it, what, like my favorite line of dialogue is in the whole thing. It's not even anything like that's. <laughs> beneficial to the story to like any kind of real degree hit me they're uh they're talking about like how that swiss guy felt is because like the benny hanna's dude i'll tell you i'm fucking never eating a benny hanna's again <laughs> yeah he goes you know that feed a benny hanna's again he goes i don't care whose birthday it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like jam <laughs> That's fucking Jonah Hill. That's yeah. absolute fucking <laughs> like just deadpan. I don't care whose birthday it is. I'm not doing I'm it. I'm not going. <laughs> no matter whose birthday it is. <laughs> he's got a bunch of those. Oh, he's got a bunch of those. I and like, that is really where like he shines, like with like the like, stuff like that. He's like, and then uh, his dad comes in. And he's like, you spent fucking twenty five thousand dollars at a fucking dinner. He was like, and Jonah Hill is just like, yeah, it was this. It was the sides. It was the sides. He was like, he goes, those fucking actually... sides cure cancer. He's like, yeah, that was the problem. That's why that he's like, that's the cure cancer. Cure cancer. Oh my god. Oh, it's so fucking good. And then obviously like um the uh the scene, the scene where he's like explaining why he's like I'm not where he's like he's getting with his cousin. He's like basically just like, yeah, so I use the cousin thing as like a like an in with her, you know. I'm not I'm not gonna let somebody else fuck my cousin, you know. If anyone's gonna fuck my cousin, it's gonna be me, you know, out of respect. <laughs> right. Oh my god, dude! The depravity is so deep. It's so fucking bad. He was like, she was like kind of hot in high school, and I was like, you know, everyone's trying to get with her. 
And then, like, they have that whole conversation about, like, if he reproduces, that, like, if the child's, like... He goes 60%. He goes, I would just bring him out to the field and just open up the door and be like, you're free. You're free. He's like... He goes, no, I'd bring him to, like, an I drive him out to the country and just open the door. I said, you're free now. You know, like, run free, you know? And that's the thing, like, Jonah Hill's character, like, he's always... He's the worst person. Like, he's the worst person. And he's always, like, partially, right? Like, he was, like... He's like, isn't there, like, a chance that the kid can like come out like something he goes yeah probably like 60 <laughs> percent yeah he's like, i believe with first cousins it's not that drastic but like he thought it was and he's still oh, like i'm gonna roll the joints <laughs> well i love the, the just to continue on the jonah hill performance he's also just like uh jordan asked him he's like you want a beer pal he's like what are you drinking he's like i got this non-alcoholic shit what's that it's like a non-alcoholic beer you know it's kind of alcohol He's like, it's a beer? He's like, yeah, with no alcohol. But you drink enough and you, you drink a lot and it'll fuck you up, right? <laughs> you right. Fuck up. Like, no, there's no alcohol. He's like, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I can get you a beer if you want a fucking beer. <laughs> Where does he go? He goes, you want to go sniff some bacon? <laughs> yeah, you want to go inside and blow some lines of bacon powders and bacon soda? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not. It's fucking great. It's absolutely great. It, it it's not sixty percent. It's point zero six percent. So the he's chances, yeah, like it's just so the chances with normal, uh, the chances with like normal parents, I guess for lack of a better word, would be uh, zero. It'd be zero point zero one two, and with uh, first cousins, it's zero point zero six two. Uh, okay, so yeah, he's just, he's just fucking everything. He's not thinking. He's fucked up. He's fucked up the whole movie. You know what's one of my favorite line deliveries though in the movie is like when he's doing the speech when uh, Belfort's doing the speech and he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, we're going after the we're going after the rich. We're going after the whales. Moby fucking dicks. He's like, um, and this script is your harpoon. And I'm going to turn with this script. I'm going to turn you all into Captain fucking Ahab. And they're all just like, who? Oh, who's that? He's, and his line delivery is so good. He's like, from from the book, motherfuckers, from the book. <laughs> like He just says that so convincingly. Like he's genuinely then, uh, frustrated by their not understanding his metaphor. And then Rugrat, he's like, use your brains. <laughs> like he, Turn your fucking brains on. <laughs> yeah, it, like it wouldn't matter. Like if they didn't read the book. Well, I mean, even then he can get the context clues. Yeah. Um. Dude, what else had me dying? Um, I mean, it is a very funny movie. Period. It is genuinely, absolutely hilarious. Mister, uh, Mister Ming, when they're doing the disposition at the end, they're like trying to get all the information. He just looks. He goes, "You gonna eat that pastry?" And then he eats like the half of it. <laughs> and then he's like, "Yeah, I don't recall saying that." And then he's like, "Y'all got any milk?" <laughs> and he's like, the oh, yeah. and there's just like a donut on the thing. His total, like, fuck, total lack of cooperation. Right. And, and like, he's just eating the whole time. <laughs> like, he's eating the donut. And they're like, do you recall this? And he's like, nah. He's like, you recall it? And he's like, no, nah, I don't recall that. <laughs> he's no <just, like, laughs> yeah. soul. He no sells them all the way through it. <laughs> yeah. so good. All right. All right. On that note, I, th- I think we jail. need to. Let's we gotta close it out. Let's close this thing out. Um, Wolf of Wall Street is a masterpiece. We can only talk it so much. The storyline is absolutely um 
riveting. Uh, I've never read the book. I'd love to read the book um, because I do think that there's a lot more in there about the ins and outs and the technicalities of what like illegal, illegal or at the very least unbelievably unethical behavior took place um, just on a, on a financial and fiduciary level, um, you know, between Jordan Belfort, um, all the guys who worked for him, gals and guys who worked for him. And there are unfortunate investors who probably suffered greatly. Um, I will ask you this, Errol, do you think the film benefits from, I think I asked you this on top up, up top of the, of the show, but I want to maybe ask it one more time now that we've kind of laughed the film off. Do you think the film, do you think that the criticisms of Marty, not including something to kind of attribute the, downfall of the investors do you think the film suffers from that or do you think that really was smart of him to kind of stay in the lane of we are making a satire and we are telling the story from one perspective and that is the side of the demons and the the story the story is from jordan belfort and he truly truly did not care about the people on the other end of it he didn't even care about himself yeah, and that was that was beautifully conveyed by the performance from DiCaprio. And it was comedically and the fact that we sit here and laugh at the film afterwards is just an indication of how hard that's even harder than a lot of comedy films are to make. It's hard to make a comedy in the first place and be funny. It's even harder to be funny at the expense of like bankrupt bankrupting hundreds of American families in the middle class. Well, I'll tell you I'll tell you one thing. I just thought about the movie to put us on the map which is opposite perspective of this from the uh from the would-be investor side they get ripped off call it wall sheep Mm, yeah oh right yeah yeah no we're gonna be rich we got it we gotta write this all right we gotta close this podcast out so we can start writing the screenplay let's get it going (laughs) (laughs) anyone makes wall sheep you'll be 25 dollars. copyright verbal copyright (laughs) All right, we'll take a short break. Um, that's Wolf of Wall Street. We were glad to talk about it. We'll do a quick synopsis or a little recap on our opinion of the film, uh, largely speaking. Um, there was probably a lot more to cover, but it's been 10 years since the film came out. It came out on Christmas Day in 2013. It's been just over 10 years. It's a decade old. I can't believe that much time has gone by on such an unbelievable piece of filmmaking. When we get back from this short break, we are going to give our rating and review and close out the podcast. Thanks for hanging in with us. We'll be right back after this break. Okay, thanks for hanging into that uh, through that break, folks. We really appreciate the listenership on this last episode of 2023. We talked Wolf of Wall Street tonight. Um, Martin Scorsese's 2013 um, wild ride and almost a modern Goodfellas, uh, Wall Street version of Goodfellas. However you want to frame it, it is a it's definitely a masterpiece. I know we overuse the word masterpiece. I personally think it's an absolute masterclass in Martin Scorsese filmmaking. I um, I have a synopsis for the film, but Errol, I'm going to, I'm going to let you kick things off. This is our portion of the podcast where we give a rating and review for the, uh, for the film. Kick us off, Errol. What is your rating for the Wolf of Wall Street? Um, this definitely gets a high rank, but 
I don't think I'm going to be like, I, so that's the thing. I usually say I'm pretty quick to just like give out like 10 and stuff. This gets a uh, 8.5. Hmm. Errol, I got to tell you, this is the first time. This is one of the first times you've given a rating that I'm just like, ah, yes. <laughs> like I'm with you now that's see, that's a good rating. That's a good, solid rating for a good, solid film that I, I can understand that rating. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you like about the film? Um, where does it rank in Martin Scorsese's catalog? DiCaprio, give us give us a quick little review of like why the film sits at that eight point five stance for you. So it is. Um, there's not a lot of other films that really do just uh, go into uh, the hedonistic aspect of stuff or like the rationale behind it. And this film does a good job at doing that. And the thing is, there is no rationale behind it. It is just. Man. debauchery for the sake of debauchery and that yeah. is uh what is almost kind of like hard to wrap your head around or at least like you know how could someone do something like this like it's because they just want to it's because they want to do that um and uh you know it's an excellent cast uh i love the uh it this does a good job so it's three hours long um it doesn't really feel like that that's a hard thing to do in a movie agree um and it's uh yeah, it drags right in. You feel like you're one of the guys. You feel like you're a fly on the wall. Yeah, it really does. It does a great job of like really like that pace is it's a it Scorsese like, pace. It like baptizes you in the art of the ripping people off. I think the thing about it too that people you know, the cinematography was done by Rodrigo Prieto, who is the same film uh cinematographer for Silence, which um I don't think gets enough credit because I do think this film is like gorgeous to look at. Um, oh, yeah. I think more so it kind of the cinematography kind of gets outshined by the editing, which is done by Thelma uh, Schoonma- Schoonmaker, who has worked with Scorsese um, basically since I think the first film that she did with him would have been, I mean, way back. Um, she did his first film. Who's, who's that knocking at my door? She did Raging Bull. She did King of Comedy, After Hours, Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Age of Innocence, Casino, Kundun, Bringing Out the Dead, Gangs of New York, Aviator, Departed, Shutter Island, Hugo, Wolf of Wall Street, um, Silence, The Irishman, and Killers of the Flower Moon. This is his gallery here. And she is a master of editing. And um, it's strange because I... I don't think she gets the credit she deserves. I think she's she's one of the great editor film editors to ever live based on just just take Casino Goodfellas in this film alone and don't even talk about all the other ones. I mean, it is a master. There's so much snap cutting and just just a brilliant piece of filmmaking. And I'm probably going on too long at, or at too much length about it. But she she deserves a lot more credit than I think she gets as a film editor in, in the world of film, I think. And especially alongside a guy like Scorsese, because, um, you know, I think he's been he has said that the most fun he ever has is has with his films is when he gets to sit down and edit them with Thelma Schoonmaker. Reason why. Yeah, for sure. So uh, that leads me to my rating. Um, I think this film is a masterclass in Martin Scorsese. I do not think it's his best film. I don't think it's it might it it could it barely would eke its way into my top five. That would be being pretty generous with films like Taxi Driver. I think Taxi Driver is a better film. Um, I think Raging Bulls a 
better too. I think I think Taxi Driver is a better film. Yeah, I think Raging Bull is a better film. I think Goodfellas is a better film. Um, I think Silence is potentially a better film. Um, if I had just, to show someone one or the other, I'd be like, watch Silence. You, you can get so much. I think because Silence is also just like it's so much deeper, um, and there's so much more to talk about. I had so much other more than fun. Money Bad. Yeah, right. Like, well, it's not even going for money bad. It's almost like money good. Um, how you get money bad? <laughs> like, it's more so about that. Because I actually don't think that the the message of the film is like wealth is corrupt. It's that wealth acquired through means of of greed is corrupt. Um, because I I think I think there are like subliminal small messages throughout the film that kind of indicate that like wealth acquisition can be. Um, money is not the is not the demon. It's like the it's the it's the glorification of it's the money is everything. Like I said, that opening scene at the beginning where he lists all of his prescripted his self prescripted drug drug use every day, his daily use, and then at the end he snorts a line of cocaine, unravels the unravels the rolled up hundred dollar bill, and indicates that the hundred dollar bill is truly the drug above all drugs, um, and handing yourself over to that greed that that greed of of wealth acquisition and and truly just be being like totally dedicated to everything to money above everything including family and self-values and pride and all of those things like leads to a, a destructive hedonism that is like very much um on display in this film in a very ugly and gross way whereas you could watch silence and there's just there are poor lessons to be learned from that film. And I know that like, whatever, it's such a hipster thing to say that like silence is Scorsese's like secret masterpiece, but I really think it is. I think it's one of his best films. And I actually think if I had to re-rate that film, I would give it a higher rating. Um, having like thought about the film a lot more since we did our podcast. Um, I do think silence is a better film than this. Um, it's not more fun to watch. Right. Would you agree with that? Like this is fun to watch. This is a wild ride. You know what I mean? It's like it's more fascinating. It grips you a little bit differently. Where, where if you, but if you want to say that again, I'm sorry. What more fast paced? Yeah, this thing moves. This thing moves like a like a freight train. And uh, silence does not. Silence is slow. It's it's not. Um, I I do think that Scorsese had a lot of have has had a lot of creative freedom across time, um, especially in the last 15 years, where he has decided to make three and a half four hour films. <laughs> And uh, we've all been beneficiaries of that as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad. I hope he continues to make very long films because I, I I think they're always pretty much good when he's at the helm. If you have if you have the cast you have, then keep them, you know what I mean? Like Yeah, them. I guess according to him in an interview, in an interview with Charlie Rose, he indicated that when he and Schoonmaker kind of sat down to like cut this thing, they were the indication from him and DiCaprio in that interview with Charlie Rose was that they were very much pleased with the final outcome of the film in that meaning that even after like um, regulatory bodies, like the production company and the district distribution company, even after they got a, a viewing of the film, like they felt like, okay, the stuff I cut was fine to cut and the stuff that, and everything else that's in there, I'm happy with like the final product that they were very pleased with, which they indicated was not like a, uh, that's not usually common. Usually there are sacrifices that have to be made by the filmmakers to make, to make the film, distributable um the indication was that they cut they didn't cut they cut shit that 
they could trimmed it down the way they needed to trim it down and also managed to still keep the film intact the way they wanted it to look and feel and be. Um, so for that, I am impressed with that aspect of the film because I do think it does feel like a final product. I don't feel like there's any fat here. I don't think it was too long. I don't think it was too short. I don't think he had to make too many sacrifices with the content. Um, I did have some issues with, um, I had a few issues with, moments in the film short little small moments little supporting performances that kind of took me out of the film there's a couple of uh, music selections that took me out of the film like that foo fighter scene just doesn't make any sense to me um i don't dock a whole lot of points for that um and overall i don't i love watching the film it's fun to watch but i don't feel good watching it i don't feel like it doesn't make me feel good about humanity to watch the film in the way that a film like silence does or um you know i i don't think it's it's philosophical but kind of like on a armchair armchair type of way if, if i can make that a crude statement um i don't think it's particularly deep i think it's pretty pretty clear what the message of the film is um and i don't think it's very it's not going to places that are uncovered by um you know other content so for that i did dock a, a full one solid point off the film i do think it's a master class for martin scorsese i think it's and i also think it is genuinely one of the funniest films of this century i think it absolutely is raucous funny um so for that it's a nine it's a nine out of ten for me 8.5 for Errol and a 9 out of 10 for yours truly is the rating for Wolf of Wall Street. Errol, do you have any closing thoughts before we uh, announce what is next, um, come forthcoming after the new year? You are muted, good sir. Yeah, no, it doesn't. I was uh, trying to think of some closing thoughts anyways. I was just going like, eh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, not really. Uh, a lot of um, yeah, a lot of big names. Um, does a really good job at just uh showing how easy it is to just be manipulated and uh, fall victim to your vices. Yeah, I think in, it's a it's a film about indulgences, and you get you get that in spades. Um, so with that being said, let's close this thing out. Wolf of Wall Street, 2013, Martin Scorsese. Great film. Uh, 8.5 out of 10 for Errol. 9.0 out of 10 for yours truly. And uh, Errol, this is it. We are closing out the year 2023 for the Peripheral Views podcast, and we are moving into 2024. The first episode coming up um, in a little over a week's time is going to be another addition to the film. We're going right back into the film series Errol, what film are we talking about in the first week of 2024? How are we kicking off the new year, bud? What is it? We're, we're gray, right? The gray. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. We're talking 2011's Joe Carnahan's The Gray, starring Liam Neeson. Um, action survivalist thriller. Just a, a banger. An absolute banger of a film. Um, there is actually some quite a bit of like... Interesting, uh, intricate details about that film. We're going to kind of unpack that is going to kick off the new year for us. We're talking Liam Neeson, Joe Carnahan's the gray from 2011 to kick off the first week of January in 2024. Um, a quick note to wish all of our listeners a happy new year. And we appreciate all the listenership we've acquired over the past year. We've managed to pump out about 20, what is this? Our 23rd, 20, 23 episodes across about a seven month span. Um, we hope to uptick our 
our frequency and um, just the quality of the podcast. We're hoping to improve on all, all fronts if we can. Um, but it's been a good year. Oh, what do you think? I, I, we, the podcast launched this year, and I think we've done a pretty good job of staying consistent and pushing this thing out. And 23 episodes is not a terrible pace, but I, I, I'd personally like to see us kind of uptick that. But what do, what do you think so far? How have we done so far in the year 2023? You know, I thought we did a pretty good, pretty good start talking about some fun stuff, and uh, it's all stuff that we're uh, never going to be afraid to like go back to as well. So, of course, um, if we ever, uh, yeah, if we if we crank out enough episodes, don't be uh, shocked if we if you see like an addendum or something. Sure. Oh yeah, yeah, a re a redo, a redux. Um, those are those are always on the table for us, um, especially with some of these big films about big ideas and about big, big, you know, films, music, all of it. All of it's on the table to revisit. Um, we've diversified, we tried to diversify our library as best we can, and we're going to continue to do so. We've got some interesting ideas, interesting content to cover in the coming year. Um, 2024 is going to be a big year for the Peripheral Views podcast. We're going to try to do as much as we can to develop the podcast out um, and diversify even further. Uh, in terms of uh, the topics we cover and what we kind of unpack. So that being said, we really appreciate all the listenership that we've acquired thus far. Um, Happy new year to you all. And uh, we will see you on the other side of the, uh, of of January 1st. So enjoy your new years, enjoy your holidays. um, And we'll see you on the next round of the peripheral views podcast.